Hey guys, and welcome back to the podcast. We've got a fantastic episode today. We are joined by an amazing guest in the form of John Harris. Uh, I'm very, very excited about this one, and I'm sure Lee is as well. Very so, John, first of all, for, for anyone that has lived under a natural bodybuilding rock and doesn't know who you are, um, could you give a little bit of an introduction to yourself for the listeners, who you are, what you're about, a little bit of your, your contest history as well? I know it's quite vast, but you know, in a in a little bit of a snippet. I'll try. Well, well, first of all, thanks guys for having me on. AJ Lee, really appreciate the opportunity to talk with your guests, and I'll try and uh, give a, a very brief recap, really, over you know where I've been in the sport. So, a little bit of an old timer now. Um, I've my contest history started way back in sort of nineteen ninety two. So, uh, as a junior bodybuilder. So I've been training a long time and even prior to my first competition back in 92, I started training with weights at a really early age, probably about 12 or 13. So I've been lifting weights for over 30 years now. Um, I'm a natural bodybuilder, from the, obviously from the UK, um, from the, the Midlands, you can probably tell from my accent. And uh, yeah, so started out in 1992, uh, trained at a commercial gym um, back in the 90s and didn't really know much about natural bodybuilding back then. It wasn't as, as big as it is today. Yeah, we didn't really know too much about the federations. I think the only federation that really existed um, was the ANB. And even then, yeah. Yeah, I think that was in its sort of infancy. So I didn't compete in the, uh, the ANB when I started out. I actually competed uh, in the EFBB which, uh, as you guys will know, that's, you know, that's an open, untested federation. But I'll say now off the bat, I'm a, a lifetime natural. So, you know, that was the only show that I knew about because I trained in a gym where a lot of the guys were competing in open shows. Perhaps some of them were using as well. And that was the norm. That was the, the show you did. So I just jumped in as a junior and, uh, yeah, I did my first show in 92, won by default, because I was the sole entry. Annoying when it happens, but most of us have been there where we've dieted for sort of eight, 10, 12 weeks and been the only one. But then qualified for the um, British finals and then won the, the EFBB junior under 18 finals in 92. So I was up against some competition that year. And then uh, repeated again two years later in 94. So um, as an under 21 bodybuilder then in the same federation. So that's how I started out. Um, that's how I got my feet wet in the sport. Um, didn't really do any other sports before bodybuilding. Um, as I say, I started out young, started lifting weights. My brothers, because I'm the youngest of five, I think just like take a, a small step back here. I'm, youngest of five siblings. So I've got three older brothers and a, and a sister. Um, my brothers all trained with weights before me. We had a, an old garage gym in the house that I grew up in. And uh, we had one of those old weeder benches in there. It's quite tatty by today's standards, but that's what I started training on. And uh, that's how I got into the sport. So um, no sort of other sports that led me into bodybuilding, just sort of fell in love with it at an early age of probably about say 12 or 13, and then ended up competing uh, shortly after. 
but yeah, that's uh, that's how I started, and um, you know, this is even pre going into the days where you know I discovered the Natural Body Federations. I mean, that wasn't until later on. Um, that was until like two thousand and one. So, um, bit of a gap there. I think I took like seven years off between competing as a junior, then coming back as a in the open men's division. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'd say just to put a cap on that, um, you know, going back to 94 when I won the EFBB Junior British, um, I was invited to go out and compete in the IFBB in the World Junior Championships over in Turkey. Now, this was um, Bill Tierney, Lee, you might know Bill, or you might have heard of Bill. Yeah. Yeah, I know Bill. You know Bill. So um, this was Bill Tierney who invited me, and uh, came backstage after I like, won the the class of the '94 British, and he said, "Look, you know, we need to take some juniors to, to the world, the IFBB, but you've got to promise me if I take you, you can pass the drugs test. You know, that's that's the criteria because that show will be tested." And I was all over it. I was like, you know, I'm a natural bodybuilder. I'll I will do that show. You know. Um, I'll, I'll, you can give me any test under the sun and I'll pass it. So got my ticket to go and, and went out and competed in my first World Championships in 19. That was my first time on a plane ever. Um, went out with a, a lady who was competing in the, the Masters division because it was a juniors and masters competition mm-hmm. um, over a few days. And I competed as a, a lightweight, so that would be under 70 kilos. That was the first time I ever did a show where I felt completely out of my depth. You know, I mean, we were talking like five classes here, uh, you know, five weight divisions. I ended up in the lightest division, um, but didn't come anywhere. Just got completely obliterated in that show. <laughs> but that was a bit of a wake up call. And at that point, I realized there was probably only so far I could go in an open competition as a natural bodybuilder. So anyway, that, that drew a line underneath my junior days. And I realized then, you know, if I was going to progress in the sport, I'd have to play on an even playing field if I wanted to do well. So that was kind of the end of that chapter. And, and it, was, it was a chapter because I took quite a long time off after that and then concentrated on my studies, my future career. I was only 19, so I was still at the university. So I wanted to carry on with my studies, graduate, get stuck into my career, get, get that ironed out. Didn't want to get too absorbed into bodybuilding, yeah, to the point where it was distracting my career path. So drew a line under it at that point and then and then you know carried on with my life and came back to bodybuilding later on. What were you doing career wise, John, out of interest? Because a lot of listeners usually um, feel like everyone that's a great bodybuilder is always involved in the fitness industry. They think you have to be a personal trainer or a coach or something to be a good bodybuilder. And they question as to whether they can balance a, another career alongside it. So just interested for the listeners, what were you, what you doing in a career? Yeah, well, um, my undergraduate degree was in computer science. Okay. Um, I've always had a, a liking towards computers. I've always been fascinated with, with programming and, and getting computers to do cool stuff, even from an early age. So, um, that was the uh, that that was what my degree was in, and um, after that I got um, 
a few job interviews with various different software companies as a computer programmer. And then uh, actually winded up um, in the games industry, video games. So, which is worlds apart from bodybuilding. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I'll say now, I'll actually, I've got two businesses, you know, uh, now to establish businesses. One is in the fitness industry and I do some coaching. Um, I work, work, work with athletes and uh, not necessarily all competition bodybuilders, you know, okay. people who want to get in shape, some, some want to compete, some don't, you know, men, women, all shapes and sizes. So do some coaching, but away from that, I'm a software developer and um, yeah, you know, quite firmly in the games industry now uh, as, a, as a computer programmer. And I balance the two and it's nice because it, it gives me a chance to work at a computer, which is what I'm good at and be technical. But at the same time, I can pull away from that and, and get away from the screen and, and have some face-to-face -face work with, with real people <laughs> rather than living in a virtual world. So I, I find the balance is, is actually quite good. Yeah, I think that's what, that's what I see definitely as a positive as, as having a balance because uh, there's, there's days in my life where I think I'm too absorbed in, in bodyboarding and my whole day is just bodyboarding, bodyboarding. And, you know, there's, there's definitely pros of that because I do love it. But I know at some point I actually do want to be involved in something else, whether it's another side of bodyboarding that's not so immersed in the nutrition and training, whether it's a backseat sort of side of thing. Um, but I, I know that there's going to be a battery level on, on how long I can just coach and bodybuild. Um, so it's interesting to hear that and, and it's refreshing as well. Um, getting a little bit, you were going to discuss it anyway, I think with your natural flow conversation, but getting a bit into when you found out about the natural side of things and the natural federations, if you could just talk us through your, your, your journey there a little bit more when you came back to the sport. Yeah. Um, this is, this is interesting because, um, it was by happen chance really, that I, that I found out about the natural sport. I mean, this is dating back now to, well, fast forward from 1994, so let's, let's go from there. So seven years on, and I'm in a slightly different place. So I've got my career started, um, I'm settled, um, you know, I'm looking at sort of getting my first house and things like that. So, so my, my life's sort of managing to steer it into a place where I've got a little bit of stability, yeah? Mm -hmm. And at that point, obviously, you know, you think, oh, actually, things in my life aren't so shaky right now. Maybe I could consider getting into bodybuilding again, you know, things are a little, you know, things aren't, aren't so bad. So um, I was having thoughts about returning to the stage. And I found myself in a, a local news agents one day, just flicking through the, the, the shelves of bodybuilding magazines. This was in the day we actually had bodybuilding magazines, because <laughs> not many exist anymore. So, yeah. you know, we've got, we got a whole shelf of them. And I, I was flicking through a copy um, of Muscle News. Lee, you might remember Muscle News. Yeah, it's the, the magazine. It eventually became the beef, doesn't it? The beef still. That's it. But, at the time was it when it was kind of like a broadsheet newspaper kind of yeah exactly yeah. it was a, it was a little it was a little newspaper and um i found myself looking through that and right near the back uh saw a tiny little article probably you know a couple of inches square and uh, it was a little advert for the the bmbf um i think they'd just come back from the worlds with a small team 
Um, there was literally, I think there was like four or five of them. It was probably Vicky McCann, Cara Mason, Andy Farrell. Andy, Andy Farrell. Andy yeah. Farrell, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Andy Palmer, possibly. And Nigel Davis. And a little write-up. And it, it was small. But I remember reading it and they were talking about, you know, the team. This was like one of the first teams they'd ever sent out to, to compete in the WNBF from Britain. Um, separate from the AMB. And they were talking about the pro card, and and that just rang a bell. I just thought, oh, this, this is this is something here. This, I've not heard about this before. So it's a natural bodybuilding show where there's a pro status, a pro natural status. I mean, this is something I've never even heard of. So I just sort of take a moment to digest that and, and think, okay, this is something new. You've got an opportunity to compete in in Britain, earn a pro card as a natural bodybuilder, yeah, and and then go out and compete in the worlds in in New York. So bought the magazine. <laughs> I took it home, read it, and then, you know, talked to Sandra, um, my girlfriend at the time, about, you know, this. I thought, you know, I really fancy throwing my hat into the ring here. I could, you know, I could go for this. And I think within a few days, I, I sent my entry off. And so that was the 2001 uh, BNBF Open. So that was that was my first re-entry back into the sport. As in, you know, competing on a level playing field in the natural federation. So I think they've been running two years at the time, is that right? Was yeah. In their first show, was it 2000? It was around that kind of time, wasn't it? I, th I think 2000 was their first. Um, pretty sure that they'd done a year before. And, and I, I think I came on the second year. Yeah. And, but they were still, it was still early days, you know. Um, Quite small shows, obviously an open show, so anyone could could jump in. Um, obviously, they were doing the drugs tests, so I sat a polygraph test, and I think I got urine tested as well. Obviously, having my background in the FBB, that might have raised a few eyebrows, but you know, I, I did the tests and I passed them, so so that was that. Uh, but yeah, 2001, I did the Open British, won my class, which was the the middleweight, so that was in the under 80s. Um, but then lost the overall to uh, David Hanna, who um, yeah, was the lightweight. To under 72 that was back then, wasn't it? Yeah, he took the under 72s and uh, heavyweight winner was uh, Ben Agboke. I remember Ben. Yeah, yeah, looked phenomenal. So it was a good show, really enjoyed it and um, really great to be able to get stuck in uh, in an overall situation at my debut, I didn't expect it. I mean, I, I just went into that show, um, just just you know, hoping to place and no expectations whatsoever. But really enjoyed it, and, and just nice to be on an even playing field, which I wasn't used to. You know, that that's that's something that um, you know was 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 new to me because I've always you know, prior to that competed on a stage where I was up against untested athletes. You never really know. What someone's background is there, you, you tend to assume that they might be using. So, you know, you, that was the first time I could go into the show and feel pretty damn confident that everyone there else in that class is, is going to be clean. So I felt good about it and I thought, I'm going to come back. Yeah, I'll, I'll do this again. Okay, cool. So at that point, did your goal switch in your head? Did you? go from just you know thinking about turning up at that show and no expectations did your goal then shift to 
wanting to take the overall and wanting to earn your pro status or did you always have that sort of the back of your mind and you just did the competitions because you know you were motivated to diet and you wanted to see how your physique was improving like did you ever have that sort of drive and goal solely for a pro status at any point i think aj it's always there i mean when i um, just just backtrack i picked up that that newspaper article in, in muscle news and you know i did read about that WNBF pro card so that was always it's always there as a carrot so even though my first year my expectations were reasonably low I just wanted to get in wet my feet see where I, I placed you know um, I think by the time because I had a good year in 2001 I won my class and you know I got to rub shoulders with with some of you know the, the, the top ranked athletes from an early stage in the sport it went my appetite and I think 2002 it was a different approach it was like right you know let's get a bit serious here let's see if we can we can win this thing you know and i, I set my sights on the overall i did you know i always set myself quite high targets anyway in life and i thought what's the point in going back and having the same focus i needed a new focus to reignite my passion and keep my intensity up in the gym because we're talking about a year-long campaign here you know and i was, I was already I could feel myself just starting to prioritize bodybuilding again in my life and didn't think it's just started to other things started to take a back seat and um you know at that point i thought well if i am if i am making sacrifices for this like i'm not having holidays or um you know i'm eating clean and i'm not taking time off from training then i want it to be for a purpose and that purpose should be to try and get that pro card so i went back in 2002 um you know, to try and win my class and win the pro card, but completely different result. And um, I got beat that year in my class, so I didn't even make it to the overall. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I got uh, got beat by uh, Wes Clark. It was, um, yeah. Yeah, tremendous bodybuilder. He came out of nowhere. Uh, he's um, he's got an athletics background. Wes has discus thrower. Oh, sorry, hammer. Hammer. Yeah, he's, he's a hammer hammer thrower. Thrower. yeah, and he still yeah. is. You know, he never yeah. gave that up. So, um, lovely guy, and um, you know, he's very, very soft spoken, very polite, and we, we had a great time at the show. But he was, he nailed it on condition that day, and I was still trying to figure out how to nail my condition. So I got beat. I got beat in two thousand and one on condition because David Hanna was shredded. And then I got beat in 2002 on condition because Wes Clark was shredded. So, the, 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 you know, someone was trying to tell me something. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I had to, had to just pick myself up and, and, and carry on. It was, uh, it was another defeat. But, you know, keeping things in perspective, I finished second. It wasn't a bad result. So, you know, um, it's funny, I'll say this now, second place is a funny position to be in because you're so near yet so far. And so if you're good in for first and you end up second, it, it can be quite a, you know, quite a difficult um, pill to swallow, really. Whereas if you sort of finish further down the ranks, you actually feel that you, well, you have no chance of winning. So, yeah, um, yeah that, that's, I, I did find it quite challenging, but I thought, look, You've just got to keep walking through this sport and improving because mm-hmm. you don't get into bodybuilding if you can't accept a close decision that doesn't go your way. And that's the way I've, I've decided to look at it. Absolutely. You know, 
Um, to, so. to stay on that topic for just a little bit before we go on to perhaps more nuances on training and nutrition, um, you mentioned how in those first couple of years you, you got beaten a couple of times on, on condition. Um, then obviously, you know, you went on to be successful and then very successful in the pro ranks as well. You just walk us through a little bit as to how you then managed to nail that condition element of, of bodybuilding because, you know, looking at some of your shots from, you know, when you were in the pro classes and at the pro worlds, to me, you seem to have an amazing balance of conditioning and muscular fullness at the same time not with being all the way like drawn out and losing muscle fullness as a result. You seem to have just nailed a lovely balance. Um, so if you could just walk us through a little bit of, of that journey to, to nailing it to a degree. Yeah, sure, Ajay. Well, thanks. Thanks for the compliment. Um, so, yeah, after 2002, I reassessed my off-season strategy, and this was the key. Um, prior to that, I'd always bulked up off-season, allowed myself to gain a lot of extra weight in the false hope that I'd have gained an extra muscle when really I was just getting fat. So uh, 2003, I stayed relatively lean, maybe went 10 pounds over my contest weight and didn't bulk up, just, just ate reasonable amounts of food. So that when I came down in 2003 again to diet for the, for the British again, I was at a much lower starting point, you know, less work to do. Uh, so my usual 12-week diet you know, got me leaner than before, but holding on to more muscle tissue. Okay. And um, it was a sensible approach because I didn't have to diet so hard. So I had I was less body fat to start with, therefore I could keep my calories higher coming down. And then by doing that, you know, I was able to hold on to more muscle tissue um, and, and you know, less catabolic. You're not entering into a catabolic state like you are when you go like really low, super low carb for uh, a lengthy period of time. And that was the main difference. Um, my training was, was was basic and relatively heavy, you know, the, the probably training three or four days a week um, on a three-way split, push-pull legs, you know, your typical fare, really. Nothing groundbreaking there. Um, but I, I, I did bring up, um, I was starting to look at, like, my weak body parts as well, um, you know, working more on my back. Um, I was starting to like, take feedback from judges. And, and listen to them carefully and I learned very early on that you know you should never really neglect your back development because often you know that's it's the rear shots that can win and lose shows and if we you know just like look at the 2003 season just just to recap over that obviously I was, I was going into that year knowing you know who I, I could be up against you know the, 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 the bodybuilding forums were just coming into um fruition then and we were starting to like figure out who we we're going up against so you know i was facing that year uh rob hope and that's the first time i went up against rob it was 2003 and uh ended up being well me and rob were there battling for the middleweights so um that was a, that was an epic battle <laughs> and uh i got the better of rob that day i think i was the last person to to ever beat rob actually before he just beat everyone so yeah you were um, so that was an almighty battle and um, I'm just delighted to, to win that show and, and just relieved to get the pro card as well, you know, win, win the, the middleweight class and went up against Sean Ferguson in the lightweights, I believe, and Krishna Buga in the heavies. Uh, yeah. So yeah, took the overall, took the pro card and then straight off to the world. 
Of course, another reason that that year you, you knew who you were going up against because 2003 was the first year that there were qualifying contests, weren't there? Yes, I believe you're right. Lee. Prior to that, it was an open show that anybody could enter. Yeah. But much the same as the sort of model that we followed when we started the UK, the FBA was, you know, when we first started out, we kept it to one contest. And, and as it grew and grew and got bigger, the, the qualifiers came in. So 03 was the first year there were qualifying shows, weren't there? And, You'd have seen other people coming along throughout the season. Well, I, I was judging at that point. Vicky had asked me to come on as a sort of probationary judge. So um, okay. I judged a few qualifiers. And uh, I think I even judged the show where Rob qualified, Rob Hope qualified. <laughs> I remember him walking on stage and thinking, oh my God, I've got to go up against this guy if he wins today, which he did. So... Um, and I went to a few qualifiers and I, I just saw all these great physiques qualifying in the middleweights <laughs> and uh, thinking, Christ, I've got my work cut out this year. Uh, but it was fuel. It was throwing fuel on the fire. And I thought, look, you know, this is positive energy. Use it in a, in a productive way uh, to, you know, to really get the best out of my physique, um, you know, for the, for the British finals. So it was, it was a good, it was a good journey and, and nice to be able to get the other side of the stage and do a little bit of judging for the first time as well. Cause I hadn't done any judging before. So that, that was good fun. Awesome. I'm interested in no one question before we move on and I'll give it to Lee to, to lead the next conversation. Um, I was just having to think that I'm interested to know what was the difference between your stage weight in when you were a junior and then the seven-year gap, and then you came back as a middleweight. What sort of jump did you have from competing as a junior to then competing as a, a men's open, very high-level competitor? Yeah, uh, good question. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was a fair jump. I think when I was competing at the age of 17, I was, I was competing about 140 pounds. So that's what, about 10 stone in, in wow. English money. Yeah. So at five foot seven. Um, I'm not particularly tall, um, sort of average weight for a middleweight, I guess. And then at 19, I was competing at about 155 pounds, so just over 11, below 11 stone. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I came back to compete in the BMBF 2001, I was up to sort of, you know, another stone heavier than that. I was up to 12 stone, maybe a little bit more. Um, my weight jumped a little bit around, up and down, you know, as I was trying to figure out my condition. So I was playing around a lot with my weight um, in terms of carving up water um, and, and, and could hover anywhere between high 11s and low 12s. So, okay. yeah, yeah, I'd say, I mean, it's not a massive amount of weight, you know, it's only an extra 15 pounds or so. But a lot on bodybuilding terms, though, isn't it? it? Yeah, it's a natural bodybuilding yeah, a decent amount. But I remember, I mean, I was going from like 19 years old. Yeah, like seven-year gap. <laughs> yeah, twenty-six. Yeah, you know, and and those are the years that you really fill out. I mean, I don't know what how old you are now, AJ. Twenty-four. Twenty-four. So you're in that sort of zone where I was just accumulating size, and yeah. um, I think you can actually gain a lot of good mass in those years where adolescence stops. You know, when you're in adolescence, your body uses a lot of calories just just to grow. You know, just to get taller and. and fill your frame out but then once that process stops and you know in your late teens early 20s then your muscles really can start developing and you can get strong in the gym yeah. so i'd say some of my 
strongest lifts were done in my late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, definitely. Awesome, Lee. I'll let you take the conversation. So yeah, let's let's move forward into the pro years. Of course, two thousand three, when you won the overall at the BMBF Britain, won your pro card. We were talking about this just the other day, weren't we? I was there in the audience because I'd gone with uh, a friend of mine who was competing. And I saw you do that, and and I I I, I kind of knew you prior to that from the forums, and we'll come back to that in a little while. Yeah. And then you had the the big baptism of fire, the the, the WNBF Worlds over in the states. So how did that how did that first year go, going over and competing as a professional? Yeah, it was great. I mean, let's just like back up just slightly before that. I did actually get the invite to go out um, in um, I think it was two thousand and two by the BNBF to do the, the IMBF Worlds and try and get my pro card in, uh, in 02. But I declined, uh, very politely declined. It was a fantastic offer, but I wanted to win my pro card on British soil. And um, mm-hmm. I was very adamant about that. And I told Vicky that, you know, it's, it's got to be in Britain, really. I've done, I wanted that extra year to improve. So yeah, but anyway, following that, 2003, I got an invite to go out to compete in the WMBF Worlds. That was my pro debut. So I was part of the British team. Great experience. Um, went out with a, a big gang. Um, I wasn't on my own in the um, middleweight division. I was up against one of Britain's best, uh, Nigel Davis. Yeah. And um, it was it was just a, it was just a crazy experience because you know Nigel's a guy who you know I'd looked up to several years now, um, and he, he was one of the you know the the, the early sort of champions in the sport. So as I, I re-entered it, you know, I, was, I, I took up Nigel on a bit of a pedestal, really, looking up to him, very inspired by what his physique and what he'd achieved. All of a sudden now, though, it's the perspective change, you know, he's becoming my competitor. So it was very, very odd um, being on stage, like next to Nigel in that sense, um, but really enjoyable. And I was up against Dave Goodin, you know, as well in my class in the middleweights. And as it panned out, I finished second in that show. And my pro debut didn't expect that at all. Was just trying to go in again, wet my feet, just wanting to do my posing routine, really. So I think back then it was like top eight or something. Eight. Yeah. Did their posing routine. All I wanted to do was, was, was crack the top eight so I could pose. Uh, so I put a lot of work into my posing. I always did a lot of you know, work on my posing routines. Uh, but yeah, it just, just again, just shocked that I managed to sort of land second place. Nigel won. He won the middleweights, took the overall against uh, Miles Stavall, I believe. Miles Stavall, yeah. yeah. In the heavies. Uh, Dave Gooding finished third and um, really enjoyed the experience. Yeah, it was, it, it, it was epic and just fell in love with competing with the WNBF. I just thought, right, I know I'm going to come back again. You know, this is, this is it now for me. And Obviously, finished second. It was it was a it was a bit of a no brainer that I had to sort of go back again to to see if I could you know improve. Two thousand and four. And Nigel had become the first UK bodybuilder to ever win the overall WMBF Worlds, hadn't he? In that year, in the men's pro divisions, I believe he's the first won. man to do it. First Englishman to have won. Yeah the uh, WNBF Pro overall. So we were just made up as a team for Nigel. And he yeah. deserved it. I remember seeing Nigel backstage. He was walking around with a T-shirt on while everyone else was pumping up. 
and I could see he'd got that sort of skeletal face, you know, the sucking cheeks and the muscular cheekbones. And, you know, you could tell he was in shape just by looking at his face. And um, we were just like all waiting for him to, to take his shirt off. And I, I just remember the moment, you know, I could just, he was just peeled and he got that great fullness. He got like really thick delt caps, thick chest, tiny, tiny waist, big flaring thighs. He, he nailed the condition and he thoroughly deserved the win. I mean, I know he, he dieted hard for that show and he was, uh, he was quite dehydrated on the day, I think, as well. I remember him sort of, you know, really struggling with his water. He was, um, he was on like just sips all day long, but he managed to keep the condition together. And um, I mean, in terms of body weight, there probably wasn't a lot in it between me and Nigel, you know, but I came in slightly fuller at that show anyway. So mm-hmm. Nigel came in lighter. We were roughly about the same body weight, uh, but Nigel just got that finish, you know, and um, it, was, it was his time. It was his yeah. time. He'd been close a couple of times, hadn't he? Think he'd had two runner-up spots before that? Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to, to remember exactly, like, what years he, and, and, what, and what position he finished in, but I'm sure he, he was probably a couple of runner-up spots uh, more on more than one occasion. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, we need, there, there were some greats back then. I mean, this is before I entered the sport, but you've got guys like, you know, obviously Dave Goodin, uh, Marlon Hospitalis, don't you remember Marlon? But um, uh, yeah, for the wrong reasons, unfortunately. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's um, there were there were some big and and the classes were so big as well. I mean, they're big today, but they were really big back then, too. I mean, talking about you know 20 guys in a lineup and then yeah, but but stacked in terms of quality, two, know, two weight divisions, sales. two only two weight divisions in the pros, weren't there back then? Like, yes, yes, just the two. And, yeah. Um, this is again. This is something else, Lee, that I had to adapt to very quickly. Um, I went from being in, you know, pulled out in in a, a lineup of three or five for, at the British to being in a lineup of fifteen or twenty guys. Yeah. At the same time on stage for like twenty minutes. So you you can't relax. There's nowhere to hide. No. Moved around, you know, to the middle and away from the middle. And um, there's, there's absolutely no letter. And I, I remember, I could fit, I remember my, my legs cramping, my abs cramping, you know, and you're trying to hold a pose while, while your legs are cramped. It is, it's absolute murder. But it was, uh, it, it was what it was. And I got through it and I, I, I was delighted to have, you know, a second place finish at my pro debut. And that just fueled the fire for the later years. <laughs> And of course, in 03, that was the year that Rob Hope went out and won the overall amateurs, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, yeah, Rob, um, Rob, obviously I beat Rob at the, the British for the, you know, for the middleweight class, but Rob was still, decided to stay on the diet. He got the invite to go out to the world to get his pro card. Everyone knew Rob had a great chance there. Yeah. And it, it would have been the, the, yeah, the wrong decision for him to, to, to well... Ultimately, it would have been Rob's decision what he did, but it just made a lot of sense for Rob to sort of carry on dieting, get a little bit tighter because I think he was just a little bit soft at the British, and mm-hmm. um, he got that extra time just to dial it in for the Worlds, the IMBF Worlds, and he he, he stormed to victory there and, uh, and got his pro card. But then, of course, that set the scene for the following year because, like now, Rob 
was a WNBF pro. I was a WNBF pro. Nigel had won, so he'd, he'd achieved what he set out to get in the sport. We didn't really know if Nigel was going to come back or not. Um, you know, the, the jury was out on that. Um, but as it turned out, you know, that, that was it for Nigel. That was that was Nigel done after that, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. I think we'd all would have loved to see Nigel come back again and, and, and defend it. But um, he'd been, you know, competing a good number of times and he'd, he'd achieved what he set out to do. So fair play yeah. to him. Well, what people don't remember about Nigel, those those people haven't been around in the sport so long. Nigel actually won his WNBF Pro card through the AMB in the mid nineties, didn't he? Yeah, um, he he'd did. been yeah. he'd been competing in the WNBF world as an AMB athlete since those mid nineties, and I think he'd hit the top three previously at least once before the the, the shift in affiliation took place and the BNBF took it over. Um, but both him, Andrew Palmer, Lee Williams, they were they were all guys that were competing in that show back in the nineties, weren't they, under the A and B banner? So not this is it. a long time. Yeah. I mean there were, there was um a bubble of athletes that, that competed out from the A and B and um at the WNBF before the BNBF like made a formal marriage with the with the WNBF back then. Um and yeah, you I mean you, you bring up some other names there, obviously like Lee Williams, who's a tremendous yeah, UK bodybuilder. And um he was the youngest ever um WMBF pro from Britain, I believe. He was the youngest at twenty-two years old back in ninety-three, I think. Wow, yeah. Yeah, so. twenty-two years old. Because of course the AMB were the the affiliates to the WMBF at that point, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Again, this is like testing my history a little bit now because obviously I didn't, you know, I didn't sort of really get involved until 2001. So the things that happened before that, the sort of things I later found out and been filled in with by stories, you know, from the likes of yourself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm fully aware that, that there's, you know, there's some great bodybuilders that, that came before the year mm-hmm. when I started competing and, and, and Bob Hope, you know, there's, there's been some fantastic talent in the sport that, that paved the way. And, um, you know, if it wasn't really for the ANB and, and what they'd done, then, you know, who knows where we'd be today. I mean, we all owe a certain amount of respect to the federations that came before us and paid, oh, of paid course. the way for British bodybuilding. But in terms of athletes, I mean, Nigel was the first real legend in in the sport in this in this country, in my view. I mean, first, first guy to win the overall title, that's... That's indelible, isn't it? That's that's never going to be erased from history. That that that's a that's an achievement that can never be taken away. Is it being the first? It's like the first of anything, isn't it? It's yeah. the first person to win one. Well, to run a, a four-minute mile, isn't it? It's like anyone who does something first, you know, first person to pull a five hundred kilo deadlift, you know. <laughs> so I mean, there's these records which which can only ever be won once, and, and Nigel's mm. got that special place in history to be the first. English meant to, you know, become a WNBF Pro World Champion. So yeah. for that will he'll never be forgotten. And people should go online and and, and search his photos. And um, there's there's a few still out there. And um, I've bumped into Nigel a couple of times since at, at shows. I think um, it's a few years ago. I think I bumped into him at an NPA show. Um, I've not been to a WNBF show for a while, but obviously I used to see. Um, you see Nigel there, he's always like helping out and always got a kind word to say 
and he, he gave me some words of wisdom. And I think like he was talking to Nigel back in 2002 after I missed out on, on the middleweight win and, and, and yeah, Nigel gave me some advice about staying lean in the off season. And I listened to that. I mean, I'm, that was feedback and I was very grateful for that feedback. Yeah. And you know, I think it, it depends who you get feedback off, but if you get feedback off someone you respect, you know, you'd never forget those words. No, no, absolutely not. Um, yeah, that, that, that meant a lot to me. And I, got, I also got some good feedback from a lady called Dory Frame, who was a WMBF pro bodybuilder, who um, yeah. did the guest spot, I think, at the, um, oh, when was this? Like, it was something like 2001, BMBF British. So that was my first BMBF show. And she did the guest spot. And then we were talking at the bar after the show. And, you know, I was saying you did a wicked routine. She, she was got a fantastic posing routine, Dory. Uh, so, I was complimenting her on the routine and then and then she said, Oh, I remember you on stage and you know, you've got this nice shape, but you just need to be a bit tighter, you need more back development, a little bit more arms. And she was like deconstructing my physique, but I was taking it all in because of yeah. what she'd achieved. I was listening. And um, you know, that feedback was invaluable. And I thought, well, for for a uh, WMBF pro champion to to take the time out to give me some valuable advice, I'm you know, I'm gonna take that on board. So that's just like a general sort of comment I'd, I'd like to sort of throw in there really because I know like the, the subjects of, of, of feedback has been something which has you know gone back and forth on a few episodes and um, I think as a competitor it's really important to be able to study your own photos from a show and, and be able to compare your physique in, in the cold light of day to others and, and give yourself a fair analysis but at the same time you know don't be afraid to, to reach out and Ask the opinion of, of some more experienced bodybuilders or judges if you feel you need to know more. And sometimes they'll tell you things that you already know, but just by having that reinforcement, that can really help you focus on an area um, that otherwise you may neglect. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. And for anybody that's listening, um, please, by all means, next time you compete with us, send John an email and he'll give you some feedback. Um, don't come to me directly John's your feedback man thanks John <laughs> I've done it many times Lee. Um, uh, you know all I'd say is that I mean, your shows now they're so big like 100 competitors plus in some shows so yeah. if you are going to reach out to me then send some photos so I know who you are and so I can like, get a recap on who I've seen but, but yeah and just to accompany that just just you know take the time to study photos too um, and compare yourself with others and and, and don't do it the, the day after the show um do it weeks after once you've yeah. sort of calmed down and had time to sort of let the dust settle and really analyze where you need to improve because this, this is so important and I, I really want to emphasize this because you know i had to go through this process several times in order to improve and to get where i did in the sport it was only by taking a step back and, 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 and having a critical eye on, on those weak areas and, you know, and, and acknowledging that and then putting that, putting a plan together in the gym and, and, and then delivering the goods in the next 12 months and coming back with a better package. And then it's just, it's just that sort of rinse and repeat process that, that, that got me to where I got to in the sport. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to keep working to improve. I think my, I, I, 
I've, I sometimes have a little bit of an unforgiving view towards sort of giving feedback on on a couple of levels. Excuse me. <clears throat> Firstly, you know, placing not winning a bodybuilding contest doesn't necessarily mean that there's somewhere that you need to improve. It's all relative to who you're standing with in the lineup. But the one place where I've sort of started getting a little bit weary about giving feedback is that the vast majority of people that are competing in our shows now are paying people to coach them for those shows. There are people making perfectly adequate living out of coaching people for bodybuilding shows, yet when they want to know how to improve their physique, which I view as a coach's job, they're coming to people who volunteer. And, and I like to push the responsibility back onto the coach. And I know AJ, AJ won't have an issue with this because I know that AJ is very good at dissecting his clients' physiques and analysing their performances on stage. And he can tell me where his clients need to improve or what aspects of their physique needed you know, needed to be the thing to sway the, the, the balance in their favour. He's, he's a great coach who knows bodybuilding. But I think there are far too many cowboy coaches out there that, have, that, that charge people good money to tell them to, you know, do three sets of 10 and eat chicken and rice, but don't actually know enough about bodybuilding to tell somebody when they've got a weak body part. Or yeah. It's not right. Um, and they kind of push the responsibility back onto me as a judge. When all my all my I see my place as assessing people on stage in relation to each other, telling somebody as an individual where they need to, I don't see that as my job. Agreed, um, and I think you, you've touched on something there with coaches. Obviously, this is something we've you know we, we've we've not discussed yet, and. Um, I mean, we could, I could talk all day about coaching because it's a whole subject matter on its own. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, Lee. Um, I think where an athlete has employed a coach, um, the coach owes a duty of responsibility to be able to supply feedback to the athlete on where they did well and where they didn't do well. All this is based on the premise that the coach knows what they're talking about, obviously. Which they should. Which they should, but we live in a world where... There are good coaches and there are bad coaches and there's coaches somewhere in the middle. So, um, so it's a little bit, a little bit messy and because you could be in a situation where a coach gives a certain perspective on a contest result and which might differ from what a judge might say, which could mm -hmm. end up with a competitor being confused. They could end up then thinking the judge doesn't know what they're talking about or their coach doesn't know what they're talking about and then, then it gets messy. So... Yeah, how we pick apart that, I'm not too sure. Um, I think it's always the duty of the athlete to make to vet their coaches, to make sure their coaches come recommended. Um, I've got a track record. I've coached other bodybuilders before them and have a pedigree. And if yeah. that happens, then they should always approach the relationship with perhaps a degree of caution um, until you know, they've, they've proved themselves as a coach, really. Um, mm, and a lot less money. I think, yeah. I think just to add on that a little bit, I mean, first of all, thanks, Lee, for the, 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 the kind comments that you had about my coaching. I really do appreciate that. But I think the issue that a lot of other coaches do have is um, a poor bias towards empathy over honesty. So they empathize or give sympathy to the client in order to make them feel better about a result that 
you know they know is correct deep down but they're just giving them way too much sort of empathy sympathy and just giving them a little bit of a boost to make them feel better when in reality the best thing that they can hear in that moment is honesty because otherwise they're going to get two people talking to them at once one being potentially a judge that are contacted and uh one being you know the, the coach that's sort of trying to make them feel better and uh it's just never ends well so like honesty is is le- legitimately probably one of the the best qualities you can have mm. as a coach when it comes to critiquing a result or a physique or a comparison or something like that um without being emotionally biased as well towards a friendship or something like that which does yeah. get <laughs> difficult when you build up long-term relationships with clients. But, um, but yeah, that's just out there. I guess so. But then we, we, we can say that it's going to be a similar sort of issue. And I know we won't hover over this subject for too much long. So I've got some really cool stuff I want to get into with John, but a judging panel, a scoring judging panel tends to consist of a minimum of five people. So even approaching one judge for their opinion is a dangerous place to go as well, because I've had, I mean, it, some strong words were had about this afterwards when I overheard it, trust me. Uh, but I overheard a competitor approach a judge asking for feedback and they got the answer, don't ask me, I had you winning. Well, I mean, that's, that's rocky ground, isn't it? That's rocky ground straight away. You know, whereas, whereas I would assess two physiques in one way, another judge might see it slightly differently. We might have people placed the other way around. So yeah. I, I get that we have an eye for the sport and we need to have an eye for the sport to do the job correctly. Um, but I always sort of give the caveat, I'm only comparing you to who else you were on stage with today. You know, in terms of picking apart your actual physique, as, as horrible as it sounds, I don't look that closely unless I really, really have to. Um, it's, it's an absolute minefield. It really, really is difficult, isn't it? But I, I do believe it should be the coach's responsibility to critique people's physiques and tell them what they're lacking. Yeah. If, if anything. Yeah, I agree. And, um, and obviously, yeah, this is, this is again, like just going back to, you know, what I was mentioning earlier about some of the words of wisdom I got from, um, former champions as mm-hmm. well. This was in the days where coaches coaches didn't exist really. I mean, coaching is something relatively new that's only appeared maybe in the last ten years. So, um, so yeah, so coaches have filled that void really, haven't they? And and you know, they they can provide the feedback. But I, it is a, it is a tricky one, and um, I've never. I mean, I, I I do some coaching now. Well, you know, I admit I, I do I do work with athletes. And what I always, I agree with AJ, I think honesty is the best policy. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't sugarcoat things because ultimately it will come back and, you know, you've still got to solve the problems for the client in the long term. So if you deny that there's a problem there, then, you know, you're holding that, that person back from, from improving. Um, and it can be painful having those conversations, but there's a way that you can say things that, that kind of, you know, like it doesn't, don't have to be, um, you know, you, you don't have to be ruthless in, in delivering the news, but th- there's a way you can like put a positive spin on on, on, on improvement. And um, I always try and when I'm working with a client in particular, I always look at their strong points as well as their weak points. And you know, if they if they come away from a show and 
that they feel a little bit down in the dumps because they lost to this other competitor because you know they lacked in a certain area then you know i can acknowledge that and so yes you did lose because in that area but you know you look at this body part you, you were you were stronger there so you know but just on balance it wasn't enough on the day and, and i always say to clients that you know it's a subjective sport different day different panel of judges and if it was a close decision it could have been a different result sometimes yeah um that that can happen so and you've just got to keep going back and eventually if you keep improving and put enough margin between you and the, and the rest of the field you will win and you've just got to make it you know the difference big enough for the judges not to waver in their decision and then to award it to to you and um, eventually you know in time you'll make those gains and that those places will come and this is what happened with me and obviously you know eventually i got to where i needed to be in the sport I mean, we've not got to there in the talk yet but um you know eventually all these little incremental improvements and come difficult conversations with the people around me about what i needed to do to my physique um got me there um you know and um i mean we got to 2004 and there was still another couple of years to go so it was um you know the journey for me had just got started um it's it's a, it's a tough one. I mean, you, you're you're elevated to another level at that point, aren't you? When you turn pro, and of course, you, you went home from that pro worlds in 2003, runner up to the overall winner. Um, so I'm guessing at that point, you know, the, the the John Harris that returned home from New York at that point, then wanted to become the second guy from the UK to to win that title. So guide us through what happened next. Yeah, I mean, after 2003, I was, I was elated to, to play second again. That was, that was higher than I thought I'd, I'd get realistically going into the show. But having got so close, that the focus obviously then was, was going back and seeing if I could get the win. Um, different game, um, competing in the pro ranks. Everything's gone up another notch. Everyone competing at that level is genetically gifted. Everyone knows how to train. Everyone knows how to diet. Everyone knows how to turn up. Everyone knows how to pose. So we're talking very small margins between the placements here. Very small, um, yeah. Very small. So you cannot let anything slip. So I came back off that show and I kind of felt like, you know, I had to up my game. Um, so I changed up my training. Um, I was even stricter in the off season with my dieting. Um, I was still eating a lot of food, but just really clean food. So, um, you know, just, just eliminated any kind of junk food, alcohol. And, and foods that I shouldn't be shouldn't be eating. Um, I was just like harder on myself, really. Trained really hard uh, throughout 2004, and uh, and went back again to to try and you know win that title. But uh, of course, I'd be facing um, Rob again for the second time. This is, uh, Rob is now a pro because he won the the IMBF Worlds, and of course, I was up against Rob and many others. You know, it wasn't just Rob. It was, was a field of athletes and um but because like me and rob were like the british boys you know there was there was a friendly rivalry going on there and you know i think we we're both aware of that and it was a, it was an epic battle um i felt i came in tighter than in 2003 mm -hmm. um maybe even a fraction lighter i think if I'm being honest, I think I dieted down a little bit harder, maybe not quite as full. I think I could have been a little bit fuller for that show, but um, I certainly, certainly the condition was there. 
Um, but as it turned out, um, you know, Rob's physique had just gone supernova that year. I mean, he'd made massive gains um, since the year before. Uh, bigger, leaner. He'd, nailed, he'd figured out how to nail his condition as well. So, yeah, Rob got the win. And uh, I finished second again. So two runner-up spots on the trot. Second to Nigel, second to Rob. But if I'm going to lose to anybody, I'd rather it be a teammate. Yeah. You know? As much as I love competing with the Americans, because they all were very, very friendly when I went out there, and I made some good friends in the States. But you know, it was uh, it was awesome to to just be part of a, a British team that did so well. So it was uh, it was it was a good result, and I was I was delighted to get two silvers. And you know, again, that was. I was, I was reaching a point now where um, I'd actually done quite a lot of competing. You know, I competed 2001, mm -hmm. 2002, 2003, and 2004. So I competed four years on the bounce and focused like a laser beam. So I'd gone from being a nobody, because I've just re-entered the sport, to like second in the world. But a nobody, a, a nobody to people that didn't remember you. <laughs> and, no, and, and nobody in natural bodybuilding. But I, I did yeah. feel offside again, so I had like a long layoff and competing. Yeah. So yeah, you know, put that into the context that makes sense. I, I, I remember seeing you uh, the back to the Muscle News magazine. I remember seeing the Muscle News magazine with the report of the show, the first show back that you won. And the first thing I thought was, oh, I remember this guy. He was a junior around about the same time as me. He was really good. Was that the BMBF show or one of the other shows? When you when you won the first BMBF show yeah. back were in, in 01, because of course I sort of slightly go off tangent. When I first started competing in the early 90s, I bought a magazine at the time that was available in the UK called Body Power magazine. And there was a full article on you, wasn't it? You were the reigning under 18 British champion. And yeah. Vision I was wanting to start competing in. So you were kind of you were the man in that division. You were you were the number one under eighteen slash junior in the country at that point. So of course I was going to remember you because that was quite there was a big impact on my early bodybuilding career from you. Um well it's nice that that some people did remember me from the junior days. Um and I've got some, you know, just to backtrack slightly, I've got a lot of fond memories back then. I remember um, Roger Shelley taking the photos, uh, probably one of the Britain's best bodybuilding photographers, he's still active today. Yeah, studio uh, work's incredible, isn't incredible. it? Incredible. Yeah, he yeah. took some amazing photos yeah. of, of bodybuilders over the years. And I was very fortunate that, that Roger um, took a lot of my early photos, which I've still got uh, back in the junior days. And, and Roger gave me an opportunity to, to write an article in Body Power magazine. Um, who, and that magazine was edited by um, uh, Diane Bennett. That's right, Diane um, Bennett. Yeah. Diane Bennett, yeah. And um, yeah, she very kindly let me write the article. And in, interesting aside there, uh, Diane was one of the judges at the IFBB Worlds in 94 mm -hmm. when I went out and competed as a junior. So I spent some time with Diane uh, speaking to her. And she's a lovely lady. And, and yeah, she was one of the judges, I think, on the panel. And we had some interesting conversations there. And I actually shared a room, not with Diane, but with, the, I think, the German judge 
And he gave me some feedback <laughs> from the judges table, you know, uh, early on when I was 19. Um, and that, that, was a, that was a great experience for me, like just, just being able to sort of go out there and compete at such an early age. And in many ways, a lot of that, that early stuff back in the 90s sort of like laid my foundations for my approach to the sport and, you know, being absorbed um, or exposed rather to, to, to such a high level of competition as a junior. So it never really went away. You know, I always sort of, sort of instill that work ethic, if you will. So that when I came back, you know, in the 2000s to compete, you know, in the BMBF, the WMBF, you know, I'd already got that, that experience of competing to, to draw back on really, um, which enabled me to, to, to make that, you know, relatively rapid progress. Because um, I've never seen myself as being like that genetically gifted. Um, in terms of sort of gaining, you know, lots of muscle quickly, you know, mm -hmm. maybe having a favourable structure and shape, perhaps. But you know, I've fought really hard for every ounce of muscle that I've built, and I've never been a big, big guy. I've always competed as a light middleweight rather than a heavy middleweight, and and traded on condition and, and and posing and just being able to display my physique to the best that I can. Has it always been around? Always been around in your in your adult years between sort of amateur and pro in the opens. Has it always been around that twelve stoneish mark? Yeah, there were about so they were experimenting coming in a little bit heavier, carving up and you know towards sort of twelve two, twelve four, and I've dipped under to sort of like eleven ten, eleven twelve. Um, and I think the sweet spot for me is probably probably you know around about the you know, high 11s, you know, just touching 12 stone, you know, mm -hmm. something like 78 kilos, something like that, 77, 78. It's just getting that balance right, really, because I found that um, if I try and diet too hard and really go for that like, ultra-shredded glutes look, then, you know, my physique tended to flatten out a little bit. Whereas if I um, got really lean, but just didn't go for the, you know, that, that last ounce. I could hold on to just a little mm -hmm. bit of muscle tissue, but that made the difference. It just kept the fullness there. And, and it's knowing where that sweet spot is, which takes yeah. years of experience to get right. And I, ne I never managed to get it right every time, even as a pro. It was always a little bit like rolling the dice. And then and, and sometimes it doesn't always come down to... Um, the body fat issue sometimes it's the carb up and and how you manipulate the water in the last few days uh, it can come down to that you can do that that's that's a, that's a very very fine knife edge to balance on sometimes isn't it that that last few days before the show yeah yeah, yeah absolutely so competition wise you took 2000 off from competition didn't you yeah 2005 is a year sorry and of course, it was 2005 when Rob Hope legitimately became the first person to win two overall world titles because he came back and repeated, didn't he? He did, yeah. He was the first guy to win two WNBF pro overalls. Well, the first guy to legitimately do it. We, we mentioned Marlon Hospitalis earlier, didn't we? Yeah, yeah we did. Yeah. He, he actually got disqualified after his second win. We widely accept, and there's no no malice there. We accept he accidentally took something that he didn't realise he was taking in in a supplement. Um, but yeah, he would have been the first. But legitimately, you know, in terms of the the results that stood, yeah. Rob Rob Hope was the first. He'd kind of cemented his position as pretty much unbeatable by that point, hadn't he? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, I didn't go out in 2005. I took a year off. Um, you know, I, I was quite burnt out at that point. I'd done four years yeah. back-to-back competing at such a high level. Uh, pedal to the metal, you know, I, I was full on. I think mentally I was quite burnt out physically. My body needed a break, so I, I took 2005 off. Rob carried on and, and got the double, and I think he looked even better. I mean, I never saw Rob in the flesh that year, but I, I looked at a few photos, and he looked like he'd improved again, looked bigger oh, overall. Incredible similar conditions the year before so you know i don't i think that you know that that was a that was a clear cut victory for rob that year uh but a lot, a lot happened in in that year um you know shortly after 2005 um you know outside of the, the competition thing i think a lot of um you know there was a bit of a sort of a breakdown in the relationship you know, shortly after with the bmbf and the wmbf and then they ended up going their, their separate ways um at that point i mean it, it made things quite tricky really because you know i say i took 2005 off um for 2006 i'd felt refreshed felt like the batteries were recharged and i was ready to go again i was in a position though where there was no like affiliation anymore because the bmbf had, had severed links with the wmbf uh, for various reasons so it was a case of if, if i was going to go out and for the bodybuilders like previous WMBF athletes from Britain wanted to go out. We'd have to go out under our own steam because um, there was no affiliation. So it was a little bit different, unusual, um, 2006. So, so fast forwarding now, to, you know, to 2006, and um, there was still a bunch of us that went out. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a team, um, although we all made our own way out there. Um, Obviously, I decided to go, you know, I was ready to go again. I'd, I'd recharge my batteries. I was going to give the, the world another another go. And um, it was a, it was an unusual experience, yeah, because I'd say we all went out on our own, but we all met up while we were out there and, and spent time together. Um, and for me, like competing in that show, I felt for me personally, that was, that was probably the best package that, that I brought to a bodybuilding stage uh, ever um, that year. I mean, that, that, that year off I had in 2005, I, I really needed it, but I didn't waste it. I was training, you know, it wasn't a, wasn't a layoff. Mm-hmm. I, was still, I was still hitting the gym, but I, I was working with my body, you know, I wasn't thrashing it to the bone. I was, yeah. I was giving myself plenty of time to recover eating well so i think i made some good gains and i brought up some more areas as well i brought up my back um never stopped working on my back really and um brought up my arms and shoulders a little bit more just to adjust the balance because i always felt that in my early years i was a little bit bottom heavy you know my legs would, would grow a little bit quicker than my, my upper body so you know I, I increased the volume on my upper body more i did some extra sets really focused hard and uh, kept the, the leg training where it was, but didn't do any more than was necessary, you know, to, uh, so I didn't want, I didn't want any sort of low, lower body imbalance to occur. I, want, I wanted to, you know, to, to come with a different package to 2004. And I, I felt I did, I came slightly heavier, fuller, um, probably, for intents and purposes, probably just as tight as I was in 2004, but with a fuller package. Mm-hmm. And, um, and improved body parts. And uh, I was in tough competition that year. It was, you know, even though 
you know, Rob had moved on. Um, he didn't come back. He was part of the BNBF team, so he, he made the decision not to come back. Um, I was up against some formidable competition uh, in the shape of Clarence McGill. Um, this was my first time against Clarence. I actually remember reading about Clarence in a copy of Natural Bodybuilding and Fitness a few months prior and thinking, where the hell did this guy come from? I think he'd won like a, one of the, you know, the big uh, WNBF like pro qualifier shows. Um, and um, there was a big spread on him in the magazine. I thought this guy, he could give me some trouble, you know. And um, I knew on the day that, you know, if, if Clarence turns up in shape, then I've got my, my hands full. Mm -hmm. and, and he did, and he was in shape. So that, you know, I've got a whole new battle there with, uh, with Clarence and um, we fought it out on stage. And of course he wasn't the only, wasn't the only guy on stage. You know, we'd, um, you've got Brandon Greenwood as well. Brandon was okay. WNBF pro by then, yeah. Brandon was pro by then. So he, he, he thrown his hat in and, and he was looking good. So he was in the class and, you know, it was, it was guys left and right who, who could give me trouble. Uh, but as it turned out, you know, I managed to get the win. Um, it was close. I felt it was really close between me and Clarence. Clarence got second. Uh, and I believe Brandon got third. He did. Yeah. And of course, I was delighted for the win, relieved because, I, you know, I, I, I thought it was quite close with, um, you know, with Clarence at that show. And I told him afterwards. But I was into the overall with the with the heavies uh, in the shape of Ben Tennyson. Mm -hmm. Ben, who won the heavies, he was a monster. I mean, he outweighed me by probably 30 pounds plus. Yeah, he was close to 200, about 200 pounder, wasn't he, Ben Tennyson? Well, if I was about 170, yeah, he would have been about 200 pounds. Yeah. So we're talking about a 30 pound weight differential there. Big boy. A big, big, big lad. And then in the lightweights, uh, I think it was... Um, Luis Santiago. It was. In the lightweights. Who beat Brian Whitaker. Brian Whitaker was running. Yeah, yeah, he beat Brian. I mean, Brian's incredible. We'll maybe touch on Brian a bit more later. But yeah, that was an epic battle um, between Brian. And that was a really close battle. I know Brian was, was unlucky, you know, and he, he felt that one maybe could have gone another way. But yeah, Louis looked superb. A really yeah. complete, polished package and tremendous guy. And I was just delighted to be in that pose down with him and uh, and Ben. We're hitting some great poses in that pose down. <laughs> Me and Ben, and we're all going toe for toe, hitting the same poses. It, it, was, it was incredible. It wasn't a long pose down because we're all exhausted by that point. And um, if it was a typical WNBF Worlds, it would have been about two o'clock in the morning by the time that pose down happened, wouldn't it? It wasn't far off. I mean, it was, yeah. it was certainly turned midnight and possibly later. Um, and I remember being backstage just before the call. I mean, I was, I was, I couldn't, you know, I was struggling to get a pump going at that point because we'd been on stage on and off all day long, you know, dehydrated. The tank was just empty, you know. And I stood backstage with the other guys. We were all sort of looked at each other in the eyes, just said, "Look, you know, just good luck." I mean, we were all exhausted, but you know, there was still business to be done and. I realised, I thought, God, I've come this far now. This is like the end of not just a 12-month journey, but a journey that, for me, started way back in, you know, sort of 2001, so, you know, five years later. And, and then at that point, uh, 
we, they called us out for the pose down. I, I just suddenly got this kind of shot of energy. I thought, you know, you've got to fight. You know, this is it now. This is my chance. So, so I gave it 110% in that, in that uh, pose down. I'm not sure if it was judged or scored or what. I don't know if that pose down made any difference, but I certainly posed like it did. And, um, and then you've got that agonizing wait, you know, for them to call the numbers out. And I remember they're just standing there with my hands on my hips, just like clenching my teeth and my eyes tight shut, just listening to like the next number that's going to be called out. And then, and then there it was, you know, they, they called out my name and number and um, that was, that was it. You know, it's just, I just felt like crying, you know, it's just, it was just incredible moment to be there and then become part of WNBF history. And that, that for me was, was the pinnacle, that, the icing on the cake. But yeah, just, just at that point, you know, I just want to touch on the fact I was an early successful one. The, the, we, we had a whole team out there and yeah. you know, I want to give, I want to give due credit to, to Cheryl Myers who, um, who also won in the, in the women's heavyweight division. Uh, Cheryl, obviously, you know, probably the most successful female natural bodybuilder we've ever had in this country. So. Oh, the, the, without a shadow of a doubt, the greatest natural female bodybuilder to ever come out of this country, Cheryl. Yeah. Such yeah. never been anybody with a pedigree or, or a quality at this point in time. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I was, I was lucky to go out with Cheryl and, and the rest of the team, and, and Cheryl celebrated her own victory that night. She won the heavyweight and the overall yeah. that year, and then subsequently went on to win, I think, five um, heavyweight pro world titles and I believe three, three overalls. Three overalls. Didn't she beat Dory Frame? Wasn't Dory Frame the lightweight winner that year who we were talking about earlier? I know Dory had won the lightweight worlds a few times. I'm sure that I'm sure that on one of the years that Cheryl yeah. won, Dory was the lightweight winner. She may well have been. She may well have been. I mean, Dor yeah, Dory was. Um, I mean, Dory was certainly like I think she was like pro world champion back in 2001, and she may have done a few more shows thereafter. I mean, I'm I'm struggling to, to remember like exactly who Cheryl went up against every time. I mean, I know I know Cheryl. Had some fierce competition. She, most uh, most of her overall battles were against Brenda Ray. Yes, correct. Yeah, Brenda Ray. And yeah. in the heavyweights, the uh, Kathy Unger, Tony West. Tony so, West, of course. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's coming back to me now. And because um, so I was actually there the last time Cheryl won, when she won her fifth class title and her third overall title, I was there. That was two thousand eleven. Yeah, we're there with our first team. Um, yeah, absolutely, and it was really special as well that we were we were all there with Cheryl cheering for her when she won that last one. That was amazing. Yeah, was that must have been such a moment because no one's, yeah. you know, so few people. I mean, we mentioned. Right, I listened to the the Nancy Andrews podcast, the fantastic show that was um, that, you, that you ran the other week, and yeah, Nancy, it's so interesting listening to like Nancy's. Um, History in the sport, and because she she's won the worlds, was it five times as well? So identical record, identical wow. records there. An 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 identical record, yeah. Two incredible bodybuilders, and you know we're lucky to be in a sport where you know we've we've got <laughs> we've got such, such talent, you know, in, in both the UK and overseas. So um, so yeah, it's a great year, 2006, and and, and you know I tagged a bit of a holiday onto it, and we spent some time in New York. Um, we did a bit of sightseeing. I remember the following day, we ended up walking past the Empire State Building, and 
course, I don't know if you remember this, Lee, but um, back in the day, that's where the offices of Chalo Publishing were. They were, yes. The Empire State, and we did a we did a cheeky little detour, me, me and uh, Sandra, and uh, we, 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 we popped in, because we just wanted to say, like, thank you on behalf of the team, really. Because uh, it was a bit of an unusual year, 2006, because we didn't, you know, there was no sort of affiliation that year. So, um, so I went in and uh, spoke to Steve Downs, um, yeah. who, was, who was in charge. And um, yeah, I mean, he, 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 you know, he produced all the magazines. I mean, it wasn't just natural bodybuilding and fitness. They, they had a roster of magazines there. Yeah, several. And it was quite, quite a big operation for considering what it was, like considering natural <laughs> bodybuilding, to have all those magazines in circulation. It was quite something back then. And uh, I do miss it now. I do miss not having the magazines. So it was an interesting little detour for us to just go into the offices and, and speak with some of the, the publishers, see what they do, and, and, and talk to you know, the people about you know, the production of the magazine. Because mm. that, that was a slice of history that maybe we won't get back anymore. No, uh, no, magazine. I don't think so. Times have changed now with, with the, the internet and, and, and you know, access to online content. So um, that, that was a nice, that was a nice little thing to have Jay, uh, I, I, I had the pleasure of meeting Jay and uh, hanging out with him for a couple of years before he eventually retired in 2009 and 2011. I met Jay because my, my first world as a spectator was 09. My first world as an affiliate was 2011. Yeah. And, and, and I, I spent a bit of time with Jay and he actually moved out of the Empire State Building after 9-11. Uh, yeah because he was incredibly fearful of, of another terrorist attack. And with that being such a big, iconic building, he, he, he felt the time was right to move out. Um, but back when you were there, obviously, the offices would have still been there. So some place to go to work in the morning, isn't it? In the oh, end. incredible. I mean, we walked, yeah. I remember walking into the lobby and, and turning to, to Sandra and saying, God, imagine you know, having the pleasure of being able to come here to work every day. It was, yeah, it was, it crazy. was an incredible space. And, um, I never actually met, I didn't meet Che when I was at the offices, although I did meet Che once. Um, I think that was probably 2003, that was the first year I went out. And uh, Che was backstage, he was, he was a bit like Joe Weeder, he used to love mingling with the athletes. Yeah. And uh, he was backstage and like just milling around and um, I, I, I think I, I, I may have greeted him and said hello and you know, thanked him for, you know, everything that he's done in providing the platform to the athletes. But I, I really didn't have the, the pleasure to get to know him more, really, which is a, which is a shame. But, um, you know, I'm very grateful for the foundation that he's laid for the sport, obviously, that, that I was able to benefit from and everyone there. He was a really funny guy, really strict, real, real, really, really, really shrewd, very astute businessman. You know, if he set the rules, they never got broken without penalty. He was very, very strict like that. But... Um, a really cool guy for for anybody who who, who wants to sort of paint a, a, a mental picture of me, kind of cross Joe Weeder with uh, Leslie Chow from The Hangover, you know the film The Hangover, and yeah, you you, you cross those two characters together and you've pretty much got Che Lo, wonderful man, and I was really really pleased to meet him. Another little side tangent there, Clarence McGill, who was runner up to you in two thousand six, John. He won the overall worlds the first time I went out there to spot. I wasn't just out there to spectate. I was with some people who were competing, but I wasn't an affiliate of the WMBF at the time. Um, he won the overall in 2009. And 
Do, do you know who I mean, AJ, Clarence McGill? I'm pretty sure I do. If I saw a photo of him, I'm pretty sure I'd know who that was. It's just it's just popped up in my head. We we met him under some really weird circumstances in New York last year. Okay. He had a conversation with us in the gents' toilets as we were swapping t-shirts. Oh yeah. Okay. Which yeah, is which is a completely a completely different side story that somebody could privately message you and ask why were you swapping t-shirts with Lee Kemp in the gents' toilet <laughs> in the middle of a bodybuilding show at <laughs> like one a.m. <laughs> Yeah, Clarence McGill was the guy that was uh, making fun of us for swapping T-shirts in the gents' toilets. Oh, okay. Interesting. And, and even now, e- even up till now, John, every time I see Clarence, he asks about you. Oh, bless I him. See him, I, see him <laughs> I see him at the Worlds every year, and he always asks how you're doing. He is no, he, a wonderful guy. Such he, a lovely man. He's, he's a gentleman. He really is. Yeah. And, and uh, every time I... I, I Obviously, we, we, we rubbed shoulders in 2006 and then in 2007, we spent a little bit of time together at the venue and we always have a good laugh and a joke. And it, yeah, it would have been, it's a shame we never really got to get on stage again together. You know, I think we maybe could have had a few more battles there. Um, got a huge amount of respect for, for him as a person and I really like his physique. Always have Lovely man. Lovely man, terrific bodybuilder. I miss a lot of those. I miss going out to the States and I made some great friends out there and they always treated the British team with, with such respect. And, um, I, you know, I, I was recognised several times out in New York um, by, you know, athletes and fans of the sport and you know, made to feel very welcome. I even got the chance to go out and work in, for a short time with uh, Joe Klemczewski. Um, oh, Dr. Joe, yeah. Dr. Joe, yeah. And this was in 2007. Yeah, me and Joe became quite good friends. I, you know, in, after I became pro, we, we exchanged emails, and he was very kind to give me an invitation to one of his muscle camps in 07. Um, and I spent some time out there training with his clients and, and sharing knowledge. And it was, it was just such a fantastic experience to, to be, you know, working. You know, not just competing, but to go to go actually in a work capacity out there just for a few days, and and um, you know, and 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 share some of my, you know, my my sort of very English way of bodybuilding with them. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it, it's a big thing out there. The training camps, you know, bigger than yeah. it is out here. So I mean, I, I learned something from that. You know, it did make me think coming back whether. You know we're missing something because there's there's people out there that will subscribe to these um, these training camps and they're, they're they're serious about it. You know they get, they get a lot of work done, a lot of knowledge shared, um, a, a very high level of, of, of motivation. And um, I, I remember coming back from that event, um, you know, as as um, you know as a as a, I suppose a tutor, but coming back incredibly inspired from my own training. Yeah. And um, you know, sort of that helped fuel my return in, you know, two thousand and two thousand and seven. So, you know, I had to go. Obviously, got the win in 06 and then, you know, the focus had to change again. You know, if I was going to come back, I'd be coming back as a, a defending champion. So, of course, the mindset changed. Um, you know, and it's a different position to be in because you go from being, you know, the underdog going in to being like top dog, if you will, and then everyone's trying to knock you down. So, you know, um, 
that, that was a different that was a different mindset, um, different position to be in. But yeah, I wanted to come back in 07 and, and try and defend, definitely. Because I've never been in that position before and I thought I may never be in this position again where I can defend a world title, so I may as well just go for it. And I had a, a good year of training, made some good gains, um, actually got a little bit heavier. I, try, I tried to see if I'm coming a little bit heavier in 07 because uh, I didn't want to present the same package that I did the year before. And, um, you know, maybe at a little up a little bit more in the off season, tried to present a heavier package, but um, it was it was a tough year. I was seven, um, as it turned out, um, like for personal reasons, really. So later towards two seven, later towards the end of that year, it was the year I lost my mother. So it was kind of it was only weeks out from the contest, you know, and obviously that was a, that was a massive loss to suffer, and it nearly derailed my whole prep. Uh, uh, I decided to carry on, and, and in a way, I, you know, having the contest there was a, served as a distraction as well, and just kept my mind focused on something rather than just you know um, suffering with with bereavement, and uh, that sort of carried me through to the contest, and you know managed to put together a decent package that year. Whether it was better than the year before. I'm not so sure, but I was just delighted to get to the stage again and, um, you know, give it my all. But I was up against a tremendous new pro at that point, you know, uh, Jim Cordova. Yeah, Jim. No, Jim. And uh, Jim had turned pro, was it maybe the year before? I believe. In the IMBF Worlds. I think, I think he did in 06, yeah. Yeah, I think he won the IMBF Worlds the year before and uh, won his pro card. And um, yeah, again, he'd made some big gains. So like Jim, Jim was a big name going into that show. And um, yeah, I mean, I, it was uh, that was a tough that was a tough contest, and Jim won. And uh, he won the beat me for the um, the the middleweights, and and then took the overall. So yeah, that was back to back to another silver that year. So three silvers and gold, um, but it's still a great year. Really enjoyed it, and you know, at that point, I thought well, I haven't done too bad here. You know, competed at world level, you know, four times now, three silvers, one gold, with an overall. Maybe it's time to you know give someone else a chance. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's when I that's when I sort of you know decided to, to draw a line at that point and, um, and and take a break. Not necessarily retire. But, you know, just draw a line, you know, um, and then 2008, my world changed again. And, you know, um, my wife felt pregnant. We had my daughter, and, you know, priorities shifted. Yeah. Because so. you'd actually got married to Sandra in 05, hadn't you, when the uh, when you had the year off from competing? Well, it was actually a year before. It was 04. I got married. Sorry, it was. It was close. 04, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, <laughs> you know, 04, 05, I think I owed it to Sandra to, to have, you know, a little bit of time off from competing so we could just enjoy our new marriage. <laughs> Hopefully, make it last. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get off on a, good, on a good footing. So, yeah, that, that was maybe played into me needing a year off in, in 05, really. Um, and yeah, same thing again in in 08. You know, a, a big reason why I didn't want to come back in 08 was was the birth of my daughter. Yeah. 
and I just wanted to enjoy fatherhood and you know I'm not the most important man in my household <laughs> it was, you know it certainly wasn't at that point you know it was a newborn baby and, and, and you know, she was the, the center of attention and the last thing that Sandra needed is me stressing about a pre-contest diet whilst you know we're trying to change nappies and take care of the little and yeah. so that was the right thing to do and and just the thing is at that point on you know like uh, to when you know 2009 comes and then before you know it it's, it's two years and um probably at that point just just things started to shift a little bit and i was still you know getting towards like my mid-30s then and Still, still could compete and, and still had it in me to compete and still had that a certain amount of fire in the belly but it that that flame it, i couldn't keep that flame there long enough mm. i could sense that it would start going out and it'd come back and then go out again and i struggled thereafter to, to get that intensity and keep it there long enough to be able to do a full contest prep at world level because you can't go into the worlds you know half-hearted it's, it's all or nothing if you're going to go in a serious attempt at trying to, to you know, get a medal position it's, it's interesting what you say there because then of course by then you were in your mid-30s and that well approaching round about that kind of mark and that was you know that that was when you decided to call it a day whereas guys now were sort of putting this 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 limitless age on bodybuilding and sort of competing into their forties and fifties. Do you think you do you think you'll be one of those guys that pops back up one day? Never say never. I've not officially retired, and I've never said to anybody that I've retired. I'm very careful about that um, because I always like to keep my options open. My body's in good shape. I've, I've had a few niggling injuries over the years. I think we've had a couple of conversations recently about like little injuries I've picked up and. I'm, trying to get past but nothing that's career ending you know nothing too serious nothing that would you could see on a stage if i had no like muscle tears or anything like that it's just maybe a few joint aches here and there which you know i've had to work through a lot of the damage i've done isn't hasn't even been in the gym sometimes it's just like knocking the house around or something and i've like pulled them you know pulled a tendon or something yeah. i'm so careful in the gym i hardly ever get injured in the gym it's always when i'm out and about i'm trying to lift a heavy box without warming up and then i'll snag my back or something so it's um, always the way isn't it i mean the worst the worst injury i've ever had not that i've sort of operated in terms of training or competing at your level but the, the worst injury i've ever had that kept me out of the gym for 18 months not long ago um i caused myself giving somebody first aid it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, you're not expected to warm up to give someone first aid, are you? No. So, you know, no. it's this is the this is the thing. You're in a situation, you're a strongish guy, you forget your own strength. So when you're in a position where you've got to do, you know, an awkward semi-heavy lift, you don't think about warming up, but you're actually probably taxing your body harder than you would do in a gym mm. environment where you've done warm-up sets. So yeah, that that is uh, that's the unfortunate side of de developing a good strength base is, is being able to accidentally injure yourself. So yeah, just to just to touch on that, I've not officially retired, um, but I'm not necessarily saying I'm going to jump on stage anytime soon. I know that sounds very uncommittal, and it is, um, but you know, I'd, I'd like to reserve the option, and I like uh, every year I get that feeling that I think, oh, should I do something this year? Can I yeah. do something this year? And then nine times out of ten 
something lands on my plate that makes it extremely hard to compete, um, whether it's work related or, um, you know, last year I moved house and, you know, I've took on an absolute behemoth project. So with the house, so this is going to keep me very busy, but um, I've managed to do some good training. We've been in very difficult circumstances. Everyone has around the world with the lockdown situation and I'm, I'm very grateful. I've got some kit and I've been able to train and I've carried on training, you know, just to try and keep some routine. Uh, uh, um, obviously, you know, with the gym shop, you know, makes you realize how lucky you are if you've got some kit to work with. So, Doesn't it? Yeah. So yeah, I've not, I've not been, I've not been wasting that, that opportunity. Now just to, just to sort the sort of competitive, uh, the, those competitive years up to your, your hiatus beginning from the sport, we'll call it, not a retirement. That was a really dominant period, wasn't it? Some sort of 2003, 4, 5, 6. And then, of course, 2008, the first year that you weren't there, Brandon Greenwood won the overall worlds, didn't he? In, in 2008. Um, yeah. so, but in that period, you know, 2003, 4, 5, 6 and 8, for five out of six years, that overall title went home with a UK-based middleweight competitor. Indeed. Crazy um, period of time. It just goes to show, this was like a mini golden area for um, UK natural bodybuilding, really. Yeah. Whether it was just like a fluke period of time where just the right people were on stage at the right time, a sort of aligning of the planets, I'm not sure. It certainly felt that way. Um, I remember having quite a lot to do with my forum back then on my website. You know, I was, I was very active on the forum. We had a little bit of a community in the UK where, you know, a lot of bodybuilders would jump in and, and, and talk about the sport and there'd be like a lot of friendly rivalry going on between the, um, you know, the athletes. And I'm sure that probably hooked in a few more bodybuilders and, and, and stirred up the level of competition. Very much, and I was going to touch on that in, in, in a minute. Yeah, definitely. That was the topic we're going to move on to for sure. Yeah, but I, I was lucky, fortunate to be able to compete in an era in the early to mid-2000s where there was so much talent in the sport from the UK competing and to have those battles and be able to stand on stage with Nigel Davis, Rob Hope, Brandon Greenwood, you know, from the UK, all the top-level athletes. Uh, there's a few people who I've never competed against, and, and uh, well, you know, it's a shame, really. Um, Brian Green, um, uh, Brian Whitaker, um, who um, I mentioned earlier, actually, yeah. a friend of mine, that never got the good fortune to compete against Brian. He always ended up in different classes and, and stuff, but um, he's got an amazing track record, and uh, of course, won the WMBF Worlds overall didn't he eventually after many many attempts four class wins and then, and then finally the overall in 15 yeah yeah indeed so um so yeah maybe that's one guy who i'd have liked to have gone up against you know just just mm -hmm. for the just for fun you know um i'm sure there's others um you know there's a whole bunch of like uk athletes who aren't necessarily wmbf bodybuilders who have never competed against as well so you know, um maybe never will you know it's just different areas isn't it and you can't compete yeah. against everyone you know but I'm, I'm, I'm certainly happy with uh you know with the with the, with the, the guys who i did manage to get on stage with in, in the mid-2000s and a lot of fun memories definitely 
you put some of those names together, I mean, you know, the likes of uh, who was winning the heavyweights back then when you were in the lights. I mean, you'd have you'd have the likes of uh, obviously there was Ben Tennyson, uh, Rodney Hilaire, Rodney, yeah. and then wasn't he? He's a great guy, Rodney. Dwayne Broadway was competing in the heavyweights. Martin, yeah, that's it. Starting out, I think Martin Daniels was hitting the Martin top. Daniels. Around about that time. Wesley Clark, he was still around. He was in the heavyweights round about yeah. that time, wasn't he, Wes Clark? Yeah. Um, I've never, never faced Wes again. You know, I faced Wes once at the, <laughs> um, at the 2002 BMBF British, but he beat me, so I never got the chance to compete against Wes again, you know, even though we're in different classes at the world. So it... it, it just the way it works out you know um, there's only so many shows you can do and eventually you know you're going to reach a point where you're going to stop competing and there'll be a sure. gap here and there and you think, oh you know i've lost my chance there but it's, that's that's always that's always going to be the case in bodybuilding i think yeah um, but yeah we, we've got some amazing amazing talent in the uk and and we, that's continued i mean i like talk about it as a mini golden era in, in the mid 2000s but you know, there's still talent being pumped out today, which we can obviously see through, you know, the, um, the UK DFBA shows. And um, it's, it's, it's a consistently high standard, and it's mainly consistently high standard. Incredible, isn't it? I mean, we, we took over the affiliate ship in 06, 2006 to 2010. There was nothing, even though people were still going out there independently and competing. We're in our 10th year as an affiliate this year, which actually makes us, statistically, is uh, a stat for you, it makes us the longest-serving WMBF affiliate in this country ever. Um, I think the AMB had six or seven years, and the BMBF were five, really? five years, so five or six. But at 10 years, we're the longest-serving affiliate now by, by, by a number of years. But in that time, I mean, we've had amazing, you know, we've had amazing track records. We've had Gosdecki winning the heavies three times, Sam Watt winning the heavies, Mark Oakes has won a lightweight title, Ben Howard's won a lightweight title, Damian Lees has come very close to winning that lightweight title as well. Um, but ironically enough, here's a weird thing, even though that sort of mid-2000s golden era was dominated by middleweights, we have never, in our sort of tenure as as an affiliate, we've never won that middleweight title. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that's we, we've won the lights and the heavies, but we've never won the middles. It's interesting, that isn't it? Because Madness. we we had such a run of middleweights in the mid two thousands. Yeah, and and then and then a clutch of heavies. Maybe it'll be the lightweights next. <laughs> Maybe I'll run the lightweights. It's it's yeah. their turn and. You know, the, the, the thing is, it's, um, I mean, when I, when I was competing, there, there was this, you know, the, the middleweight, I always found the middleweights a very difficult class to win. And sometimes you'd see bodybuilders try and manipulate their body weights in order to get out of the middleweights, mm. into the lightweights or into the heavies. And then, you know, they could do certain things to their bodies before the show, you know, dehydrate, end up in the lightweights or over water, over carp themselves to end up in the heavies. You know. But I think maybe that was the case back in the 2000s. I think like, all the classes are just stacked now. I don't think there's any easy option, is there? Because the heavies seem to like, they've got their act together with the conditioning now, haven't they? Everyone seems yeah. to have got their act together with the conditioning. That's probably one of the things which I've noticed more as a trend over the years is just like more 
people at the upper level coming in conditioned. I mean, we still had it back then, but there just seems to be greater proliferation of it now. I think it's standard across the board now. And again, we talked about it in a previous podcast, and I won't sort of bang the drum again. I think there's a very unhealthy trend that everybody thinks that's the be all and end all these days, and that, you know, they're, they're, they're prioritizing condition over other aspects of the physique, which I know. I know you're a conditioned guy and you always prided yourself on being in great shape, but you always maintained that fullness and didn't let yourself get emaciated and strung out with it. Whereas I think guys now are sort of giving up muscle at all costs. Yeah. You know, it's, it's counterproductive in my view, but we, we could do a whole other podcast on that, on that score. Yeah. I think you've covered it well. And and just to, you know, put a, Put a cherry on it. I, I, I'm in agreement with with basically what what you know you and others have said on this, and and I think there's a, the point of diminishing returns with condition. Yeah. You know, you want to get to the point where you stripped the fat off, you know, in order to show your physique, you know, with nice clean lines. But once you get to the part where you're dieting off muscle tissue in order to gain a few extra pounds reduction in body fat, you know, you, you're going too far, and it's not a dieting competition; it's bodybuilding. Um, and you know you're not necessarily going to get that extra mountain of work you're going to have to do to get your body fat down just that little bit further i certainly learned that and you know that's why like the year i won the world overall in 2006 you know i was i was certainly in good shape but not over dieted um i I could have maybe got a fraction harder but i knew in order to get that look you know last bit off I would have had to sacrifice muscle tissue to do that and that would have upset the balance so just you know be sensible uh, aim for the sweet spot and uh, and, and no more and um, you can get to that end point healthy uh, without killing yourself and then and have a great physique you know at the same time that, that's worthy of winning a, a competition um, but you don't necessarily need triated glutes you know, um, if you've got them, great. But you know, they're not necessarily a ticket to first place. No, no, they certainly shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. Um, in terms of contest sort of history and track record, then AJ, is there anything else you want to touch upon before we move forwards? No, no, not at all. I think feel free to go onto the forum, and then I've Absolutely. got a, I've got a few questions myself on training and nutrition. If we could fit them in. Sure. Um, and try and keep it under three hours so we could put it up as... <laughs> like, That's the problem. When, you, when, when you've got all-time greats of the sport, when you're absolute legends that nobody's had a chance to talk to for years, these things, they're going to be long, aren't they? <laughs> I'm not bothered. It's more so just for the, the, the ease of uploading it. <laughs> I get you. I get you. So uh, just a, a bit of trivia, actually, John. You mentioned doing Dr. Joe's camp. <laughs> You you competed against Dr. Joe in the Worlds, didn't you, and beat him? Um, we were in different classes. I did compete in the same show as Joe. Um, I believe this was 2003. There were only two classes in 03, and you, you and Joe were in the same class. In actual fact, um, you also competed against my, my dear friend who we lost a few months ago, Bill Murphy. In that same, oh, right. Joe, Joe right. and Bill were in the same division, in that lightweight division. And I think they were sort of seventh and eighth, I think Bill and Joe were in. in yeah. 
I may have competed against Joe a couple of times, possibly. Yeah. Just there were, thinking there about were a it, couple of worlds. I, yeah, this is this is it. I, I'm pretty sure I competed in the same show as Joe in 2006. That's the other one. I think Joe's a lightweight that year. He would have been a lightweight that year. Yeah. Um, I was a middleweight, so that's maybe what I was referring to. But yeah, it could well have been 2003 as well. Um, maybe Joe can, if he watches this, <laughs> uh, put the well, history straight. But anyway. I did a little bit of uh, research. There's a fantastic website. If any of the listeners ever want to sort of waste a few hours and study the sport a little bit, there's a fantastic website called musclememory.com. And, and it's kind of like the Wikipedia of bodybuilding results. And I was racking my brains the other day after a conversation that you and I had, John, because it was widely accepted a couple of years ago that Babakar Niang was the first person to ever win the WMBF world title overall twice. Because everybody had forgotten about Rob Hope. So I went back and I checked muscle memory and I'll tell you where this came from. And anybody that's listening to this that's sort of ever been offended by the fact that Rob was never mentioned as the first person. The reason that that was kind of lost in translation is because he won both the amateur and the pro world titles as an overall. And at some point in the middle, the records may have got mixed up or whatever, but Rob was showing on the record as <clears throat> time amateur overall or one time pro overall, but he actually won three overall titles, one as an amateur, two as a pro. Yeah. Um, but just to firm it all up and get it straight in my head, and that was obviously the... Uh, when, when I saw a lot of the, the results, uh, I, I sort of settled on it. And, and all of your contest results from that era are in there. And, um, and I was looking down one of the lineups and saw Joe, Dr. Joe in there, saw Bill Murphy in there and other names as well. Names of people that are on the judging panels when we go out there now. A lot of coaches, you know, a lot of guys in your position, you know, similar position to you where they're, uh, they're taking an extended hiatus from, from competing. Um, some of the names on there, absolute legends. So if you've got a few minutes to spend, go and waste your time on uh, on uh, musclememory.com. Yeah, I'm uh, aware of that website. Somewhere. Yeah, I, I'm aware of it. And it's been a while since I've been on there. But it's important, I think, to to try and uh, to have this, this record yeah. of history of, of bodybuilding. Um, and it's good that it's all in one place and, and yeah, that there's an archive because as the years roll by, you know, it's... Um, you want to be able to recall who you went up against and there were such big classes. Sometimes it's hard to remember who exactly you, you were up against, um, you know, going, going, looking at the class as a whole. But yeah, um, Joe, um, the muscle camp, um, 2007. So yeah, I mean, I got the invite, um, to do that. Um, shortly after I won the world, you know, six, and mm. it took a little bit of setting up, you know, and, we had to sort of schedule time out, you know, from my life in order to, to, to get out there, you know, to when to, to, to sort of slot in with, with Joe's muscle camera. And um, I probably it wasn't I wasn't there too long. I probably spent about three days out there, and we had a big bunch of um, of, of, of men and women, uh, competitors, non-competitors, who just wanted just to have a, a weekend of training and dieting and learning from the pros and just be absorbed in that sort of lifestyle for two days uh, just to scoop up as much knowledge as possible and do some training as well, do some hands-on in the gym. And uh, I thought it was an amazing idea and I, uh, I sort of came back from it thinking, why aren't we doing that over here? You know, I could see the idea take off. If, um, 
you know, we need we need Joe to come over. I think I even had a conversation with Joe saying we need to get you over to the UK to, to get this. Or well, maybe you just need to do it, John. <laughs> you might, perhaps. You yeah, never know. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I, do, <laughs> I, do, I do a little bit of coaching, but I never sort of like rolled it out to the big format of the of the muscle camp. But um, yeah, maybe that's an idea with with legs. I mean, I'm. I'm I'm easy to contact. I've got my own website at johnharris.com. You know, if anyone if anyone thinks that that's a good idea, then drop me a line. If if, if that's you know, I'd love to hear feedback from people, and I'm all for ideas and anything that can help drive this sport forward um, and keep motivation high, especially in the current climate. Obviously, we've been so under so much pressure with with what's gone on in the world the last few months, and I think. You know, bodybuilding needs a shot in the arm. We need to sort of really attack this and, and, and get the sport back on its, you know, uh, firing on all four cylinders again. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that was a lot of the uh, the thought process that AJ and I had behind putting these podcasts together is to give people a bit of content and to give them something to sort of stimulate the the brain a little bit. And one of the things that I've been pushing, like I alluded to a minute ago, is studying the sport and learning a bit of history. I mean, the if you ask any football fan last time England won the World Cup, they'll be able to tell you. They'll be able to tell you who played in goal and who scored the winner. You know, if you ask a, a hardcore boxing fan who our first world heavyweight champion was from this country, they'll be able to tell you it was Bob Fitzsimmons way back in the early 1900s. But not many people now, especially with the advent of the, the sort of ethos of the sport through social media and stuff, I... I don't think there are enough students of the sport, you know, enough people that, that, you know, if, for example, if I were to say, you know, to the average person before they listen to this podcast tonight, who was the first man to win the WNBF World Pro World title? You know, would Nigel Davis have been on the tip of their tongues? You know, certainly should be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a trend, a pace setter, a pace setter in the sport, an absolute, you know, icon, but... Yeah, do some do some studying, guys. And talking of talking of motivation and, and sort of bringing people together and getting bodybuilding firing and motivated, um, of course, it it's long been sort of a, a fact in my mind that you were a massive, massive part of that because of of the high profile guys in the sport, guys and girls in the sport, or people in the sport in general. You were one of the very first people, you know possibly because of your background in, in working in computers and in computing, you were one of the very first people to bring the internet to the sport with you. You kind of, you ushered in that era, didn't you, with, uh, with, with the forum, with the Natural Muscle Forum back in the early 2000s. That's right. Uh, shortly after I threw my hat back into the ring in Natural Bodybuilding in 2001, I, I set up a website was on johnharris.net i think at that point and um mm -hmm. you know i'd got a, a few skills in in building websites back then and uh i thought well there's, there's not much online about natural bodybuilding you know the bmbf have got a little website and the uh, there was a few american websites but not that much going on not that much activity so i set up a website and tagged a little forum onto it you know the the, the, the jh forum john harris forum and uh I didn't expect much. I thought it might just be me and my mates, but <laughs> before long, it was just, you know, uh, natural bodybuilders started to, to, to pour into it and uh, it, it, just, it just blew up really fast. And I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is great. There's obviously, you know, a demand for this because prior to that, 
you know, there was no way for bodybuilders to, to sort of find out um, who they were up against the shows. You mm-hmm. turn up at a show, you wouldn't know, you know, prior, prior to the internet, you turn up at a bodybuilding show, you didn't know who you were going to be up against until the day of the contest. You know, there was no social media. So you know, the forum gave an opportunity for bodybuilders to talk, to learn, and to find out who was doing what shows. And it just created a bit of a spark, a uh, little bit of friendly rivalry. Obviously, we get the, the you know, little arguments kicking off and differences of opinion. Uh, Did we? That just, <laughs> not half. I mean, Christ. I mean, some, some of the stuff that went off on there is the bordering like, litigious at times. But um, mm-hmm. you know, it got very close to the bone on more than one occasion, which made my job as a moderator very uncomfortable because obviously I'm the, you know, in charge as it were. But um, yeah, it's, it, it's been a roller coaster ride. And it, it was right, it was like that right throughout the early 2000s. I mean, the forum I'd say between 2003, you know, maybe what, 2015 or something was, was a real buzz. And um, yeah, I'd like to think that it helped sort of just push forward a little bit in the UK just sort of got people together um, and it was a place where I'll tell you why it's quite good because it was a place where bodybuilders natural bodybuilders irrespective of their the federation they could competed in they could come to a neutral place and, and, and vent off without fear of you know upsetting someone really it was a, it was a neutral battleground if you will um, there wasn't, you know, the form was never affiliated to any federation, even though, you know, I've competed in and amongst different federations. Well, you competed with the BMBF, the WMBF, and I've competed in some open shows as well. You know, the forum itself was always an independent entity. So irrespective of which, what background you had, um, you know, you're always welcome on there. And, and we didn't, you know, we didn't mind, you know, what you wanted to talk about. Uh, but we, we we accepted all conversations. It's a shame in a way over recent years that the forum is sort of, um, has, has died down a bit, but I do think that the advent of social media, i.e. Facebook, Instagram, where individuals now have got their own private space, you know, um, their own pages, rather than having to dive into a forum to, to post their updates, has changed the landscape now. Yeah. Um, it's a shame because you know I've seen the decline in the forum over the last few years, and and I think that's a common theme that's probably happened with a lot of bodybuilding forums over recent years, um, certainly natural ones, and you know we've lost a lot of ground to the likes of you know, like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and and, and others, but. You know, um, on the plus side, you've got things like YouTube, like what we're doing now, uh, video shows, uh, they're gaining a lot more popularity. So maybe maybe it's time to, do, to just do more of this stuff and, you know, get, get the content out this way. Um, oh, I know some of us missed the forum. I, mean, we I was talking about it with Ben Howard the other week when he was on the podcast, and, and I still see Ben very regularly because, you know, we keep in touch a lot, and he misses the forum. Does he? I mean, and he, credit, he credits that as being the place where he went and found out that the sport existed, you know. And if you think it's, it's something that I'll sort of highlight that should probably make you very proud of that, actually, John, because he, he sort of found the forum through a bit of a, an internet search when he was 16, 17 years old. Yeah. It, it got him rolling on the path to eventually sort of follow in your footsteps and win that WMBF Worlds, albeit as a class winner, not an overall winner. but. 
the, the pedigree of some of the guys that came from that forum and were helping each other. And again, maybe a little bit of a trend where hands-on coaching wasn't so much of a thing at that point. So we'd swap tips and, you know, people would go on there asking for advice and, you know, I know, I mean, I know I caused you a few headaches by getting involved in a few battles in those days. Um, and luckily, all bar one or two of the people who, who I'd have no need to speak with anymore, pretty much anybody I ever disagreed with on the forum, we sort of buried the hatchet and we're good friends now. Um, but we had some, you know, we had the end of year awards where people would vote for best show, the bodybuilder of the year and, you know, the, the, the forum thread of the year and things like that. And they were good fun times, weren't they? Yeah, they were. I remember doing that. We'd, we'd run an end of year Christmas sort of, comp- you know, sort of votes competition where we'd have a bunch of categories, you know, best show, best male bodybuilder, best female bodybuilder, best posing routine, best forum thread, you know, outstanding contribution, most underrated bodybuilder, dark horse for next year. We had all the, yeah. you know, and then there was like, there was a couple of like rotten tomato type categories where yeah. uh, you know worst posing routine and you know uh, I think biggest ego and biggest stuff like ego that. yeah that was that was usually won by the same person wasn't it <laughs> well you know yeah. it, it was we, uh, I I won show of the year three four times I think uh, I think pretty, I was always yeah, really probably, proud of it if you look yeah, at the show reports on on our website now. The little, the little logo at the top, you know, Natural Muscle Show of the Year 2000, and I think it was 12, 13, 14, 15, or something like that, I won it. Um, and I was so proud because it was sort of like your peers were voting, you know, people that, you know, the, 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 the average man or lady, the sort of the man on the Clapham omnibus, as they say, was, was giving their opinion on what was the best of the best in, in an honest, unbashed, not trying to win everybody over kind of way. And it was, it was an award that really meant a lot to me when I was winning it, to be honest. Well, I'm glad it did, Lee. And, and um, it was very much a, like a people's award. And I think that's probably, you know, yeah. what gave it the, you know, the, uh, the gravity of, of being like, recognised, I suppose. Um, and... Yeah, I, I, we ran that for probably those awards for, for, for many years. I always remember yeah. it took ages to like tot it up at the end. You know, there was a lot of votes that came in. Um, and you could never vote for yourself. You know, we had a few grand rules. You could only vote once. You can't vote for yourself. So I had to remember vetting all the votes to make sure people had abided by the rules. And some of the categories, like, you know, it was down to one vote as well. So you had to make sure you added it up correctly, which otherwise, you know, you'd end up with a different result. So little bit of pressure on there but we run that for numerous years and obviously it's great to see you know the the uk dfba you know win best show for so many years on the bounce and it was uh, yeah it was it was i mean i know you know i i know it, during one of the massively heated online arguments i had with somebody on that forum they sort of mocked the the fact that you know yeah, yeah, they were slagging me off and saying, "Oh, well, at least you won the show of the year on the forum, kind of thing." And they poked fun at it, but it actually meant a lot to me. I was very, very proud of it. Yeah, uh, rightly so. Yes. I mean, people can vote exactly <laughs> what they want, and it was it was a neutral competition. Yeah, there was lo- lots of other shows as well that they could have voted for, and um, you know, it, it's some of the some. It, it, was, it was quite interesting because when I we started the awards. No one really knew who was going to win. 
you know, no. it could go one way or the other. And um, I always found that people would like leave their voting right to the last minute anyway. So you get to like the last day and you think you, you might have an idea who's going to win and then there'll be a flurry of votes the day before mm-hmm. the closing date and then it would steer the other way. But you, you consistently won with that uh, best show. Uh, for several years on on the, on the, on the trot. So well, what I'd like to do, I mean, I've still got the Natural Muscle website. Um, it's more of a an archive at the moment. Um, we don't have the forum at, at the moment, um, but we've still got an archive of articles on there. And I'm still hoping to add more content. I, I am guilty of not adding on as much as I'd like of late. Um, I've just got too many plates in there at the moment too many fingers in pies. I know that feeling. Uh, guilty, guilty, but I, I, I would like to dedicate more time uh, to the Natural Muscle site and, and get more content on there and do more good stuff with it in the future and uh, to support natural bodybuilding in the UK, whether it's in the shape of more articles or might, maybe, you know, you can do some more of these podcasts. I, I think they work well. Maybe get some video content on there. Well, I was going to say a good way to get the ball rolling would probably be to link this podcast to it. Absolutely, yeah. You, know, you could drop this in because this podcast about essentially about you today, isn't it? And uh, it'd be yeah. nice to get that rolling. I just remembered as well. Wasn't there a uh, a transformation contest on the uh, Natural Muscle website? It was aimed at people that were forum followers that had never competed before. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, the two guys who came first and second were James Moncrief and Tony Barnes. And they've both gone on to compete from that. Yeah, they had. Yeah, it was just that transformation contest. Yeah. You know, you could argue that it got them into competing, couldn't it? You know, it's the first. Absolutely no doubt whatsoever that it did. I kept it there for a while, albeit under a false name. Um which I'm not sure you ever kind of sussed out. You probably did because you knew the IP address who was posting it, but I kept, not necessarily. Um, I, I kept a journal on there for a while. Brian yeah. who was contributing. Brian Whitaker was was a member and a contributor, wasn't he? Yeah, we had we had Brian on there. We had a few guest uh, posters. Uh, Brian popped on and, and did some stuff, um, you know, and um, a few like a little Q and A and whatnot. We, we we had competitions. We had like lifting competitions as well. Yeah. We had the physique competition. But we had lifting competitions where people would film themselves doing body weight, um, uh, bench press, um, or you know deadlifting with a multiple of their body weight. You know, yeah, chin dips with sixty kilos. We we had a series of these uh, of these challenges and people would have to film themselves in the gym, film the weights, make sure it was all genuine, you know. Yeah. Um we had to see all the footage and then upload it and then, you know, we had competitions and prizes for the for the winners and um, we had those competitions sponsored by, you know, the supplement companies at the time and they were giving out yeah. products. So, you know, that and it all worked. It took a little bit of work to set up and you know, I was in a position where I've got a few skills putting, you know, managing the website. So I was able to do that and, um, and it was all for good fun. And, and if it got a few more people involved in the sport and maybe got a few people on stage, then, you know, for me, that's good and very worthwhile. But the, the site's still there and it's not, it's not going anywhere soon. I'd like to get a little bit more content on there in the future. And um, I apologise to people for not, been able to keep it as busy as I'd like of late but hopefully things will change it'll come again I actually got a little admission about the forum now 
Um, and there's somebody I want to remind you of who went on there before we move on. But probably in that score, I mean, I, I promoted bodybuilding contests from 99 to 2000. And then I spent a couple of years sort of not doing because I was focusing on, you know, changing my career and things like that. And promoting obviously was a big, big sort of use of my time. But it was actually through the friendships with people uh, through the forum who, ironically, people I'm no longer friends with for one reason or another. But it was probably being on that forum and mixing with people again that probably got me back into promoting and gave me the book to say, well, I've only, you know, I want to get this done. And now I'm 25 years in, 10-year WMBF affiliate and uh, about to try and enjoy our 10th UK championships. And I would probably credit the, the John Harris Forum with probably... Yeah, that was that 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 was probably what pushed me back towards doing it. Really, I, wow. I think yeah. so because yeah. it was a community. It was a community that we all wanted to be part of, wasn't it? And then when gaps appeared in the market, and then you know people were needed to, you know, when the MPA broke away from the AMB, and you know, we were all brainstorming ideas of how we could make things better than they were, and somebody needed to take up the mantle of the drug testing and. They wanted a promoter in the Midlands for the Midlands show. And, and then as the years developed, there was you know more and more people having a demand for the WMBF to have an affiliate in this country again. And I think a lot of my promoting career has probably been influenced by that community on the forum. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. Well, to say, and, and, and in hindsight, looking back, when you, when you think about how online communication has evolved over the years, there was a bit of a void between, you know, say 2000, 2001, 2002, and then the advent of social media, big time like, like Facebook, you know, there's that gap in the, you know, the early to mid 2000s where, you know, social media wasn't really there, but the forum, my forum was, and it mm. plugged the gap, if you will. And, you know, if it helps you in some way to sort of make the decisions in bodybuilding that you needed to, to enable you to be where you are today, then, I'm proud of that, you know, because it's, it's kind of like, it's, in a way, it's helped, it's helped steer a little bit of, a little piece of history, perhaps, in, in the sport. Well done. You know, a piece of history that some people are going to regret ever happened. <laughs> but, but certainly one that's, you know, even down to, you know, it, it, it was just a community that we all wanted to be part of, and we all had our role in that community, in the kind of, the, the mantle of somebody needs to step up to the plate and start running these shows, kind of, was pushed in my direction. Yeah. Well, I remember, you know, when, when I went out in, in 2006 and 2007, uh, you know, to the WMBF Worlds, and we hadn't got the affiliation anymore. So we were an independent team. Um, we could sense the void. And I, I even had a few conversations with um, Steve Downs and Charlie Carolla. Charlie, yeah. Uh, yeah, great guy, Charlie. And, you know, it was, um, it was like, what are we going to do? You know, because like everyone wanted to keep a link there. You know, all those that remained, um, you know, the WMBF pros and IMBF athletes that still wanted to go out and compete. Everyone, you know, that remained wanted to, to carry on and continue competing. But we became more acutely aware that there wasn't an affiliation anymore. And, you know, at, at one point I even thought, you know, could I... Could I step up to that? And the thing is, I'm not a show promoter. It's not in my blood like it is you, Lee. You, you, you know, you're, 
you're very cut out for that role. And I, I've always said this, it takes a certain type of person to be able to, to do that job. You know, you've either got that skill set, very specialised skill set to be able to do all those difficult tasks that's required to put together a show. Either you've got that skill set or you haven't. Maybe to some degree you can develop those skills, but I think I still think you've got to have it, you know, a, a certain amount of like, like raw ability to do that. Uh, for me, I've always just been, you know, a bodybuilder and, and mm. a little bit of a, you know, a computer whiz as well at times. You know, I could do the tech stuff, but like the show promotion, it was always a case of like, you know, we need someone to sort of fill the boots and, you know, I'm, I'm, we're all very grateful, Lee, that you, that you stepped in and, and um, you know, and set, set that relationship back up again, uh, you know, to give the, you know, the athletes the, uh, the route back to, to the WMBF, IMBF Worlds. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I appreciate that. I mean, I know not everybody's grateful that I stepped back into the plate. And I know it was a decision that cost me a fair bit personally because, you know, bodybuilding being the sport that it is, it did sort of bring about the breakdown in some of the relationships I have with some people uh, because, you know, they, they didn't want it to happen. But at the end of the day, you know, it needed to happen. It was the best. I mean, it was sitting in that audience in 2009 with the the independent athletes who were actually... MPA Britain winners that I'd gone over with um, because there, there was no world championship from competing that year with who we were with the UIBBN and there was the four people on the team and you know myself and and a couple of friends and family and we were sitting I was sitting there in the audience thinking this is it's absolutely ridiculous that you know now two sanctioning bodies the AMB the BMBF of have allowed their relationship with this organisation to break down. And this is the major league. This is, this is the one that everybody needs to be winning. This is the big opportunity. And, and it was, it was a no brainer for me. It really was. And I think probably, I know, I know that the podcast isn't about me, but sort of you talk about that mindset of a, a show promoter. I think the biggest thing for me was I didn't want anything out of the sport personally. I wasn't still competing. I wasn't looking to win a title or I'll be somebody in the sport. Um, and I, I think that's one of the reasons I'm probably able to look at things a little bit more objectively and be a little bit more neutral. And I'm a little bit more willing to make those difficult decisions because I'm not trying to keep anybody happy. I don't need anybody to tell me that I've, you know, I, I'm not going to stand in front of that panel of judges worrying whether I've annoyed somebody. Um, I, I sort of do it black and white. And uh, yeah, I guess you, you've got to have that mindset to to be a good show promoter. And if you've still got a vested interest in the sport in terms of what you're getting out of it as an athlete, I think that that's always going to blur the lines, in my view, going to blur the lines between yeah. whether or not you can truly promote a contest as a platform as it's supposed to be, or as one that you know you would you would veer towards your own needs at some point. But, but I mean that you know. That's, again, a whole other conversation, and I know AJ's dying to get into some training and nutrition stuff with you. So I'm going to pass back, and if that's all right, John, and uh, let let AJ uh, field the next couple of questions. Awesome. Well, yeah, just to sort of cover that that last topic that we had there. Um, fantastic discussion, and uh, I'm sure people will take home a lot from that. And, and just to add on the forums from from my end when it was still up there, um, I only actually realized the other day that it wasn't up there because I went looking for it again and I couldn't find it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, in 2017, I, I was reading through 
all of Ben's and a lot of others old logs and just taking little bits that I could learn from when Ben like made a change that sort of was relevant to when I was maybe making the change as well. Um, what he'd learned from specific peaks that he'd done. And I took a lot from, from that and, um, I'm still trying to keep it a little bit alive with the one that I have on, on my site actually. And uh, I'm like, unfortunately this people are more interested in the videos on the site. They don't care about the forum really. Um, which is a shame. Um, and that's exactly what you just discussed is the rise of social media and the rise of, of video content and the way that people like to learn and, and absorb is completely different now. They don't really want to read and they prefer, prefer to listen or watch. Um, it's easier, isn't it? It's why everyone has a, yeah. a an Amazon, whatever it's called in their, in their room that, you know, they shout, play music and it plays music instead of yeah doing the yeah. other stuff getting up and picking a cd off the shelf has become too difficult for us these days <laughs> but i'll give you the one thing i forgot and i'm sorry to jump back in again because i know everybody's dying for me to shut up no Don, do you remember do you remember eric morris i mean you won't have forgotten eric uh, forgotten eric morris the old yin was his username on the forum of course yes you know eric may rest in eternal peace a lovely lovely man uh, ex-powerlifter, competitive bodybuilder, pro wrestler, um, competed with the BMBF in the early 2000s before he became ill and passed away. You know, we had this community where Eric would go on every day. He'd go online and do his son crossword, have a hop on the forum. Then he'd get, get the bus over to Carlisle near where he lived to train and then get the bus back and hop on the forum again. Every single day, he would go down the members list and see whose birthday it was and put a post on to wish somebody a happy birthday. You know, Eric never missed anybody's birthday, did he? And that was the kind of community that, that, that there was then, that, uh, that there aren't many people, and maybe it's a generational thing. Who takes that much care over people now? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's sadly lost, Lee, and, and you, you've just reminded me of lovely Eric, and I, I used to read and enjoy all of his content and he was a religious poster and he used to get a lot of respect off everyone on the community, post up photos as well. And it's just an inspirational figure for someone in his senior years, be able to sort of, you know, still battle away in the gym and, and do those yeah. big lifts. It's just an inspiration to us all. And I miss that, you know, I do, I do miss um, that, that content and, you know, put all the arguments aside, that, that happened on the forum and there were plenty of those, but there were some golden moments too. And I used to be able to use the forum as a, as a form of motivation to train and inspiration. And it's, uh, it's uh, I just, like I said earlier, I think it's uh, like a good purpose in the era that it was in. And, and as AJ said a few moments ago, unfortunately it's been sort of slightly overtaken by the uprise of social media. Yeah. People have changed the way they absorb content now. People, rather than sitting at a computer and reading page after page of, of someone's blog, they'd rather put their computer on, tune into a podcast, listen to the content whilst doing something else. You know, people can multitask now. Yeah. So they can listen to a, a three-hour podcast, which is you know what this is shaping up to be by all by all sounds of things uh whilst doing some work or you know doing some other activity and yeah and, uh, yeah that, that's the way i absorb a lot of my content these days so i don't think we can really fight it 
Yeah, for sure. Awesome. So yeah, moving on as suggested. So I've got from my followers and people on Instagram, most of the the questions were in relevance to your, your training and nutrition practices throughout your career. And most of my own questions as well to yourself that I'm interested in are relevant to those topics as well. So if we start with a little bit on training, I know you coined earlier in the podcast that your training was relatively simplistic. It was straightforward. It wasn't complex. But I'm, I'm just interested to have a little bit of an overview to your, your frequency, your volume, your intensity, and how those three variables sort of changed a little bit over time as you started to learn more about what worked for you. Yeah, okay. Well, I suppose that the common denominator with, with training was, was always recovery. And as a natural bodybuilder, you will be limited by your recovery ability because you haven't got those extra sort of hormones in your system that assisted bodybuilders do. So, you know, that's you're always working as hard as you can whilst being able to recover well enough for your next workout. Yeah. So that that's basically was my ethos. So how much work can I do without triggering overtraining? So that led me into quite a basic program for a big chunk of my bodybuilding career when I was competing. I probably did um common sort of like push pull legs type split, you know, where I do and then and the rest days varied, so I'd maybe do like say three days on the bank, so push pull legs, then a day off, and then repeat. Yeah. Um, but then if I needed another day off, I'd take one. So it would be, you know, it, it could end up being a push off, pull off, legs off, repeat. Yeah. So so the the the, the thing that varied was the rest days, and and, and that as I progressed like further on as being a pro, it'd become instinctive over when I take the rest day. And um, that would be as and when I need it. Um, so that would be like a typical workout split. Um, sometimes I'd mix that up and, and switch over to um, an upper lower split. So upper body, lower body, you know, well, to be like upper, off, lower, off, repeat. Yeah. But the only problem I found with that one, AJ, is that like as, as like, I got more into my training, especially as I was getting more into the pre-contest stuff. My stamina to get through the upper body session would, would run out. My, my tank would be empty halfway through. So usually the, the, the upper lower split would be maybe more of an off-season thing, uh, whereas pre-contest I'd, I'd switch to a push-pull legs type affair. Um, so that's like the broad overview of, of the workout structure. Um, but within, within that, um, I mean, I, I don't want to get into, this could go on for ages, like, like going through every set of every exercise, but just to sort of flesh it out a little bit more, um, I'll probably pick two or three exercises per body part. And then every exercise, then you'd have your usual warm-ups, and then it'd usually be like two, at very most three work sets to failure. And failure would be um, for upper body, um, usually between um, anything between six and 10 reps, lower body slightly more reps, maybe eight to 12. So, I mean, there's nothing there that's groundbreaking. I know this is like, you know, no, it's good to hear. very typical type of training methods. Um, but the, the one thing that I was, is I used to train very hard. Um, I used to give every workout session 110%. 
and I was very consistent, you know, in, in, in workouts. So I, was, I was very good at putting workouts back to back to back for extended periods of time to make those very small but important incremental gains. So over the course of a month, I was quite happy to not see any progress on the scales. You know, it might not move at all, you know, but over the course of a year, I might gain a kilo of muscle. I mean, that would be a lot, actually, in the later years a to lot. gain a kilo of muscle. You know, um, maybe it was less than that, you know, but it's, you've got to be prepared to sort of like put away the scales really and, and just concentrate on the training and let the weight take care of itself and just go, go by the mirror. Did you logbook your sessions? Did you go in with a plan? Did you have numbers to beat from the previous sessions? I went through phases of that, AJ. Um, periods with and without, um, just just to experiment. I wasn't. I wouldn't say I had on heart religiously. I'd logged everything. No, um, I did try it, and I think some years I did. And I, and I think the years that I did try it, um, it it worked up to a point. But the the, the you've got to be careful with logging. Um, because, and I'd be interested to hear both you guys take on this because I, you, I got to a point where sometimes you can become too focused on increasing the weight um, block because you want to beat what you did last week, yeah. and and you can break form if you're not careful. So you know you think okay, I got I got eight reps with this weight last week. You know today I want to you know either get more reps or want to increase the weight. Let's say you want to get more reps. You know psychologically you've got to. You try and make sure that your reps are clean but if you're chasing more reps your reps could end up getting a bit sloppy or you know you might not get the full range and you just got to watch you don't trip yourself up and, and 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 try to you know add too much weight to the bar too soon or add too many reps too soon so he's like keeping form is critical training safe is critical and i'm really big on on training safe and not getting injured because the minute you pick up a serious injury it, it sets you back so much it's um it's probably one of my biggest pieces of advice really is, is you know, uh, training within your limits and, and not like, pushing your body's uh, limits too hard, too fast in, in terms of, of adding weight to the bar or, or going too low with the reps as well, like getting into powerlifting. Um, you know, I've got quite strong thoughts on that too. Um, you know, I think bodybuilding and powerlifting are the separate sports. And if you're built for bodybuilding, you, you typically you'll, you'll have smaller joints um, you'll be more prone perhaps to injury from from doing the more powerlifting type movements with the low reps and yeah you know, you, the last thing you want is a serious injury a muscle tear in bodybuilding because it can it can really ruin things for you you know if you get that tear so um yeah that, that's one reason i managed to sort of stay in pretty good shape you know is that i never i never went like down into those like single double rep zones with the with the super heavy weights so i always sort of and on the side of caution and, and went no lower than say six reps. Yeah. Yeah. I think to, to add your comment there, I totally agree with the log book scenario. And it's something that I struggle with even myself get very attached to the numbers sometimes, especially when, when dieting down, you just don't want to lose the numbers equally. And you, that's why I'm, I'm actually a big fan of, of recording and my, my, my workouts. And I know that you, did a bit of that with your your video series um and you were probably some of the first people to start recording and putting out video content of training sessions at least in the natural scene um but yeah i'm a big fan of, of recording the lifts just to make sure that even if my training partner says it's good i'm happy with the the tempo and the range and comparative to last week it looks similar um 
on that note, did you ever train with a training partner or were you purely a solo trainer? Because I know that you trained a lot out of your your own facility. Um, how much of your training was solo and did you ever train in commercial gyms as well with training partners? I started out in a commercial gym when I was 16. That was when I joined my first commercial gym. I had a training partner. That was a chap... Um, called Nick Griffiths, who I was at school with. We were at grammar school together. And he was a bodybuilder like me. And he didn't compete, but he was strong. He was a little bit stronger than me in some exercises. And I, and I might have been slightly stronger in a few others. So we had that, that little bit of a, a sparring sort of going on, you know, where you can push each other. And it was really nice. I really enjoyed it. And um, I, I had a training partner right through my junior days uh, as I went through school. And, and um, I think... At some, when I was at university, I had periods where I was training on my own and, and with the training partner. Um, and I also had training partners intermittently in my early comeback, sort of 2001 to 2003. But, you know, um, it's kind of, I always find it slightly tricky because I was always changing. I, I changed my routine quite a lot. And, okay. um it didn't always fit in with my, what my training party want, wanted to do. And yeah. I was very disciplined, especially when I was, I was competing for a show. And so I, I always thought it was a lot to ask of my training partner to, to, to commit to my routine when I was in the throes of a contest when it might not fit with their schedule. Yeah. So I actually found it in the end, like it was easy for me to train on my own when I was competing. Then I could train when I wanted. I could change my routine when I wanted on a daily basis. If I needed a day off, I didn't feel guilty because I had to cancel on my training partner. You know, whereas if if we were training together and I didn't feel recovered, um, you know, I might do a workout that I might feel that I shouldn't be doing because I'm not recovered. You know, just to please my training partner. So, I, yeah. In the end, I just find it easy to train on my own. But when I built my um, my log cabin gym at my old house, which I haven't got anymore, um, back in 2005, um, I, I trained pretty much on my own, um, apart from when I had friends come to visit and uh, you know, you had to do the odd sort of cameo workout with me, which was always good fun. And I, I do enjoy training with people. You know, I do miss not having a regular training partner now, and, and I wish in some ways I've got a training partner now. I've got friends who probably pop by. Obviously, no one recently with the lockdown. I've not had anyone to train with. But occasionally, you know, old friends will drop by and, and put me through my paces. Because I think it's good to, um, you know, to, to sort of uh, to, to have that, uh, that, that sort of... Uh, yeah, yeah. It's good, good to be able to sort of like, like test yourself with, with training partners in the gym. Not necessarily have the force reps thing because I'm, I'm not so, so big on the force reps thing anymore but yeah, just just to have someone in the gym to sort of just raise you know amp up the intensity and and, and just uh, get the best out of you because that that's the hard thing with training on your own is getting the best out of yourself and yeah all i've ever had really is my music and you know you can turn your music up and you can put your best tunes on and you can you can give it you all that way but it doesn't replace having you know someone screaming at you and encouraging you to get more reps yeah so. yeah yeah I've, I've found that especially things like leg pressing is one of the most common things where you probably could have had four or five more if someone was there watching the pace of the set or someone had, like if your training partner goes before and gets 20 you've got that pace of the 20 and you know you don't want to get any less than 20 when you could make 15 feel hard on your own if 
if you're there on your own in, in your garage, like I've found that myself. Um, but there's certain exercises like upper body, incline pressing, you fail when you fail, you know, even if your mate sets 10 and that's the benchmark, he's a better presser than you. It's unlikely you can urge your way to 10. Um, it's like there's a mindset shift on some leg movements. Do you agree with that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, when you're doing any kind of heavy compound move, whether it's like leg press, deadlift, um, or squat, you know, it's more of a mental battle, I think. You know, you get the lactic acid set in. The muscles aren't fatigued, but the, the overall toll on the body is so extreme. You, you know, you get the burn set in. Um, you're running out of oxygen, you know, if it's high rep stuff. And it's just, it's just a mental battle to get to the end of the set then. And um, I did some, like, big lifts. On, I think these on YouTube as well. You can dig them out where we did some high rep deadlifts with 140 kilos and there's another one with 180 kilos i think i managed something like 32 reps with 140 on the deadlift wow. and it's stupid and i think i got 18 reps with 180 and um that, that's the strength endurance and i won't be able to do that today i did that like several years ago i really trained up for it quite hard yeah. um, but that that kind of test i think it's good like to for, anyone who's into weights to do something like that maybe you know at least once in their careers you know is a regular challenge at least just to see what you're capable of because it's a real test of, 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 of mental grit because i can tell you now like doing that like 32 rep set i think i got to like 20 reps and i'd had enough and i've got I've still got another 12 reps to go and um and how how i got from like 20 to 25 i don't know i mean i think by the time i was up to 25 i was like ready to die <laughs> and then <laughs> and like 25 to 30 i was like I, I just you know i was kind of like detached from 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 my body at that point <laughs> i don't think it was god that was doing that <laughs> i don't think i was doing them anymore it was, a, it was the Lord, good Lord above. And then, and then I got to 30 and, and then I, I was ready. I, I thought like psychologically I was, I was going to do it. Cause you know, when you get a number in your head and you kind of like train, you can do reps to that number and then somehow you feel like you need to stop or you can't do any more cause it's a round number. So yeah. I got to 30 and I thought, yeah, that's it. And, and then I, I thought, well, you know, I've got to 30, what's, what's an extra rep or two. So got 32 out but i'll tell you now like that what that session that was the end of the workout for that day and i, I, I was i was over trained i couldn't do anything for the rest of the week <laughs> your nervous system is um I, yeah i mean two, <laughs> the, the following day i was that sore but two days later i just couldn't even get out of bed you know i was just i was just a wreck so, yeah. but good fun and um i think you know you should you should do challenges like that you know, yeah. at the end you know, push yourself. Oh arguably safer than chasing a one rep max challenge as well all day long yeah yeah after that i mean you, you know that you're not so long as you keep good form on those reps you're not going to do yourself any serious damage you know you're going to batter your cns for a few days yeah. uh but no i mean that was a good workout probably got some growth out of it as well you know maybe i'm sure like i don't work out the following week and i you know my, my strength levels have gone up and my endurance had gone up as well because it obviously improves your cardiovascular capacity doing that kind of training but you, you can't do that kind of training every week you see an acid just fry so uh, that's that's kind of a once a year type thing maybe you could do a bit more often than that but um for me i think i, I only did that challenge um, a few times for the forum just just to get something on the record and i said i did the 180 kilos for i think um 
I think got some like 18 reps or something with that. And in a, in a way, that was hard. But actually, I, I think I found the, the 140 harder, um, yeah. Yeah. just because they, you know, the stamina, the lactic acid, you know, they, they, and they, mm. the oxygen depth was just that much greater. Mm. Um, mm. But that got, I, I was by no means the strongest there. The, the, I'm sure someone else got higher. Um, I, I'm, I'm struggling to remember names, but I, I know. I think it was Martin Petro, wasn't it? Could have been. Yeah. Do really good on that deadlift challenge. On that yeah. deadlift yeah. challenge, I'm sure Martin did incredibly well. Um, I don't think he was on the forum, was he? I don't was think he not ever, oh. ever, ever on the forum. I know Godzeki and Kay had huge deadlift battles, but this was probably maybe a few years later. Yeah, uh, Glenn Danbury they got some good lifts in there as well. Um, Brilliant strength athlete. Yeah, and, and and some dips as well. Um, there were some brilliant dippers. We had it. We had a dips challenge with sixty kilos, and I thought, you know, we might see a few guys get a half a dozen dips here, and then I'm sure some someone came on and did like thirty dips or something daft with sixty Gee. kilos on the belt. You know, just ridiculous stuff. But that's uh, it, it's good fun. Definitely enjoyed that. But I have two more questions on training, then we'll cover a little bit on nutrition. So one of the critiques of the push pull splits and the upper lower splits is that the arms don't get enough focus because we tend to tag them on at the end of the session. And um, when we're, when we're tired and we're fatigued and you know, you'll do a few sets of curls and some push downs or whatever you'll do for arms at the end of a session. And they don't tend to get as much priority principle basis as they would if they were the front end, you have, really good arms in my opinion um and i'm just wondering as to whether you ever prioritized them and you ever did an arm day in your programs or did you always have them tagged on at the end and they just grew fine with that approach you've got me thinking there now because whether i did pull out arms at any point and prioritize them um i can answer that for you go on lake on you can go on (laughs) <laughs> I remember I, I remember round about the time it was after you turned pro, I remember you publishing a workout on the forum and you went to a four-day split and you were back on its own on one day and arms on their own on one day. Ah, chest and, I think you did chest and delts one day, legs another, then back on its own and arms on their own. I know, I know, yeah. I, I know you did that for a while. I remember that from the forum because I actually copied yeah. routine and did it for a little while. This is it, you see, because I've... I've got to be careful because I want to try and get my history right here. Because I know I did a lot of push pull legs, and I know I did quite a lot of upper lower. But like you know, I, I did other stuff, and um, I know going into the 2006 Worlds, I spent a lot of the year bringing up my back. So I know I pulled back out on its own, definitely did rack pretty much on its own. I might have tagged in rear delts because it's kind of there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah. Um, can't say for sure with if, if biceps doing that workout. I'm, I would have thought I would have done biceps, at least with triceps, Lee, but I, I don't know. Um, let he me definitely go. did buys and tries together. Yeah, it could, have, it could have been a buys yeah. and tries. Because I, I think I'd, my arms, even though they've got like, you know, quite decent separation, like the overall girth of them, was, you know, always wanted to get them a little bit fuller, especially the buys. Um, so, yeah, I think I did pull them out. And that's a very valid point about... Um, biceps being an afterthought if they're at the end of the workout they will get tired if you're training back first they you know the buys will be pre-exhausted so by the time you get to the end of the workout you know they are going to be somewhat tired so 
by the time you're hitting the bicep curls, you know, you're probably not going to be able to lift as much or do as many reps as you would if you were hitting them fresh. So yeah, if you, the general sort of point I'd try and hammer home there is if you've got a weak body part, you need to prioritize it. You need to pull it out and you need to do it first, train it when it's fresh. If I may jump in though, very briefly, John, it's really, probably really important for the listeners to know you were already a world level pro athlete by the time you did this. This, this isn't something we'd be advising young beginners to do, is it? No, not at all. Yeah, that's an important caveat, Lee. And um, yeah, I don't want to confuse the listeners who are just starting out here, really. Before you start looking at your body and, 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 and de deconstructing it for weak points, really, you just need to get in the gym and hammer the basics and build a foundation. Once you've been training for a few years and you've got something you can analyse in the mirror, then you can see what your strengths and weaknesses are. And yeah. then... And even then, like it's maybe too early to start prioritizing. Maybe you just, you know, if you're competitive bodybuilder, maybe you need to diet down so you can really see what you've got. Get on stage, get the photos, compare yourself with other athletes. If there's any feedback to get off your coaches or judges or anyone else, get the feedback in and then and then build a plan and then start attacking your weak points. You know, it's not a day one issue. You shouldn't really you shouldn't really focus on it because you'll you can kind of you can end up confusing your workouts. Um, uh, when you yeah you should be at a point where you need to keep things really basic when you start out but yeah 2006 2005 2006 when I was like making that big world's attempt um, you know I, I knew what my weaknesses were I knew I had to bring up my back and you know, I wanted to add a little bit more to my arms fullness I wanted to redress the upper lower balance so I felt my legs were there I needed a little bit more thickness in the torso and, and I made those adjustments. In fact, you know, I, I've got a little bit of a saying here. I, I think it's that in order to build a balanced physique, sometimes you have to follow a slightly unbalanced training program in, in the mm -hmm. sense that, you know, I do like probably do a little bit more volume from my weaker body parts compared to my stronger ones in order to get that balanced physique, you know, and then don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid to do, you know, some extra sets for your weak points, even if it makes you, you, you program not look very pretty because it's slightly unbalanced. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, you know, if you're a competitive bodybuilder, what matters is what you're presenting on stage. The judges do not care what you, what you're doing in the gym, you know, no. uh, one, one iota, neither do they care about what your body weight is. So that may, I'll make that point while we're talking about that. So it's, uh, your body weight is irrelevant. Um, and you, you know, your training programs kind of irrelevant on, 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 on the, the day of reckoning on stage. Mm. Awesome. So final question on training and that's, did you periodize your training in the sense of doing deloads and periods at lower volume to recover and rest up? Or did you just listen to your body in the sense that you just either took extra rest days or you took a bout of rest days in a row to recover from periods of overtraining or overreaching, whatever you want to point out? I did. Um, after a, a competition I'd always take a, uh, a sort of mini extended break from training full stop I probably wouldn't step in the gym for a fortnight after the show okay. and just just let my body you know put on a bit of weight again and you know let, let, let my body sort of restabilize and um, psychologically I'd always be sort of quite tired from from you know the, the, the competition prep so yeah it would it would I'd have a after a show, I'd have a period of inactivity and then I'd, I'd just slowly just sort of get back into training and then whilst gaining weight at the same time. And I'll probably do somewhere in the region of 
um, you know, a couple of months really hard training and then have a week off from the gym. You know, zero training, just like active rest, if you will. You know, so maybe doing a little bit of exercise, but no lifting, just to mitigate against injuries. Because when you're training at that high level, you know, you're going to pick up little micro tears here and there, and you, you know, you might not really think you're doing much damage in the gym, but uh, over the course of a couple of months, you know, those, those little strains can 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 mount up if you don't do anything about it. So. Um, I'd always schedule in a week off after every eight weeks of, of solid training. And what if that, that would coincide with other things in my life as well. I might take a little vacation, you know, a little break, or you know, do, take a week off work, and do some jobs on the house. And, you, know, you, you, you can kind of work it into your life so bodybuilding doesn't feel like it's disrupting your life too much that way. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Because um, we've all got a balanced bodybuilding with that. You know, in our lifestyles, otherwise you're not going to be able to sustain it, and that that was kind of part of the key. I think it's just getting bodybuilding to fit in, you know, in a, in a way that didn't feel like it was disrupting my entire, you know, uh, existence. Awesome. So, moving on to nutrition, one general topic that I wanted to cover. Obviously, there's loads of nuances that we could go on to nutrition. We could cover so many different areas. But one thing that I wanted to ask on contest prep side of things is when you started obviously in a leaner position to begin a prep throughout the prep, were your calories fairly linear? Did you just keep them at sort of a similar level throughout the entire period um, and not have to make many adjustments because you started leaner? Um, And in and amongst that question, if you could answer whether you did periods of refeeding, or diet breaks where you ate higher calories for a period of time, um, which kind of ties into the fact that whether it was linear or not throughout the prep. It's a non-linear prep. Um, typical contest prep for me will be 12 weeks. So I'll say right now off the bat, you know, I'm not, I've never subscribed for to, you know, these very long contest prep periods of 16, 20, 24 weeks. I'm not knocking them. They suit some people. It's just, they never suited me. Um, when I flipped the switch to mentally to do a show, I, I was only ever able to maintain that level of focus, you know, laser-like focus for 12 to sort of 14 weeks um, when I was competing. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I you know flipped the switch at sort of 12, 14 weeks out, and then um, then I'd make some very small adjustments, I'd, uh, small dropping calories usually just by just a diet cleanup. So I wouldn't be actively knocking carbs out, but I might be just just you know taking out junk foods any alcohol, anything, not that that I would drink much alcohol anyway, but just the obvious stuff would go. And then I'll do that for like a week or two and then the way to drop off and, and, but then that would plateau, you know, and then, uh, then after two weeks, I'd make another adjustment. So I might, you know, just knock out some carbs late at night um, in my last meal and just, just switch to a salad, you know, with my protein. And then uh, it might be tagging a bit of cardio once or twice a day, nothing crazy, just 20 minutes power walking or on the bike and then that'd be enough just to keep the weight moving but then that would plateau again so every week or two i'd be tightening the screw on the diet and and at the same time just gradually ramping up the cardio so no two weeks would ever be the same it'd be a gradual increase in tempo all the way along that way your body can't um acclimatize to the diet that you know you're not going to plateau 
or if you do it at a plateau, you can make an adjustment to keep things moving. Um, what I learned was not to play all your cards on day one of the diet, you know, drop to low carbs, do maximum cardio. If you do that on day one, your body will adapt to that quite quickly and then you've got nowhere to go. Um, so I always did it in small increments. But then having said that, you know, by the time I'm, you know, six weeks out, four weeks out, you know, it's pedal to the metal at that point and I'm probably on, um, you know, what, two and a half thousand calories a day. Um, so quite restricted, you know, maybe an hour and a half of cardio a day, training wow. most days. Um, and um, yeah, six or seven small meals. I'm a big believer in lots of small feeds. Uh, just keep the metabolism burning, really. Rather than having several big feeds a day, I'd be, I mean, I'd, I'd normally eat off season maybe five times a day anyway. Uh, but in the off season, in, in pre contest, I would increase the amount of feeds to six or seven and just have a few hundred calories each sitting. Um, so I never felt like a starving star. And um, I'd eat quite late into the evening as well. So like, I'd never go to bed on an empty stomach. There'd always be some food in the tank. And then the other thing I'd do is a bit of cardio first thing in the morning, fasted on an empty stomach, um, you know, when your body's got no fuel to burn other than body fat, you know, there's no carbs in the system. So your body's forced to burn body fat. I found that a really good way to, to get lean. So I'll get up and take my glutamine um, or maybe a, you know, half a scoop of whey first thing, wash it down with a half a litre of water and then just, just do a 45 minute power walk first thing. And then I'll train in the middle of the day. Maybe after I've done like meals one and two, so I've got some carbs in the system and train in the afternoon when, when my energy levels are at the highest. And then I have a few more meals and then I do my second session of cardio quite late in the evening. Um, and that, that, got me, that got me really lean. Um, but then when you get like down to week, like let's say four weeks out, um, I just all the stops come out then. And then I'll just do whatever. I had to do to get the last bit off. So um, at that point, typically I won't be sleeping much anyway. So I'd be going to bed at say midnight and getting up at four in the morning. So I'd probably be on four hours sleep. Yes. Um, I wanted to sleep more. Don't get me wrong. You know, I, I, I realised the importance of sleep, and I wish I could get more sleep at that point out. But um, I realised that you know when, when you're down to sort of five percent body fat, you know your body wakes you up. Um, because it's telling you to go out and find food. <laughs> it's almost like your body's natural instinct to fight starvation. So I find myself getting up at four o'clock and then find, you know, trying to find stuff to do. <laughs> so uh, I keep myself busy doing my cardio and then do a bit of work if I could. Uh, my concentration levels were starting to suffer on the low carb. So I found the computer work quite difficult at that point out, but I'd, I'd get it done. And um, and then actually, towards the end of the prep, I'd probably start training earlier as well, just to get the workout out of the way. Right. Because if I left it till later in the day, I'd be too tired. And um, so I'd end up training probably late morning, uh, you know, as, as, the, as the contest got closer. And the other good thing about training early in the day is you get the afterburn effect. So um, you're burning calories at a higher rate for the rest of the day because you've spiked your metabolism early on. Yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, that's, um, I'd always make sure I get a good breakfast in before my workout. Maybe maybe meal two in as well, and then, and then train, and then buffer the workout both ends with um, you know with some glutamine um, and then and, you know some simple carbs. Mm. Did you always tend to favour less cardio, so low intensity, steady state, and just with your walks or with the bike? Did you ever try hits 
And how did you have any success with hit if you tried it? I tried hit a little bit, and it, it can work. I think the, the, the trick is with hit um, is, is is to go really short. You know, five ten minute blasts. Um, you know, you can't go hard and long, can you? You can go sort of like soft and long or hard and short, <laughs> and, and both both do work. And I I, I preferred I prefer doing the low intensity stuff. To be honest with you, I found it slightly more effective. Um, the only thing I did do, which I found quite good, was at the end of my leg workouts, I do a good blast of like hit on legs, you know, like on the bike or something, just to, like you know, just <laughs> sort of flush the, the lactic acid through and, and stuff, and just help with recovery on the legs, and it just helped with the, the sort of the strength endurance on the legs and just my overall fitness levels. So I always kept a little bit of hit in there, just for the just for the fitness, and sure. just um, but yeah, more. As a tool for losing body fat, the, the low intensity stuff definitely. <laughs> Perfect. I will let Lee lead into his questions. Um, and yes. Then wrap things up. Yeah, the the sort of three that I cap it off with. So yeah, three three quick fire, light hearted trivia questions, John. First one then. Um, funniest thing you ever seen at a bodybuilding contest? Funniest thing ever. There's loads because <laughs> obviously I've judged shows, so I've seen lots of shenanigans on and off stage. Oh, can I say two? Um, yeah. All right, there are two two little stories. Uh, yeah. All right, the first one was uh, oh God, what year was this? Was this at BNBF? Uh, was this like 2004 or something? The year after I won. And um, yeah, this this was a weigh-in. This was at the weigh-in, I think. I think it was a like was it Sean Ferguson at the weigh-in? Oh, I mean, this, this story, yeah. I think, I'm sure you probably know this story. And yeah. Sean Ferguson was trying to get into the, I think, the heavyweight division. The previous year, he was a light, was he a lightweight? And he went from he'd been a, the year before. He'd been a head. lightweight and he was going up to the middles, but wasn't there somebody really, really top notch in the middles <laughs> was trying to swerve him? And he had no chance to get into the lightweights, did he? Kevin Napier. Wasn't was it, it Napier? Napier was it, Ke was it Kerry Napier? Yeah. So. Look, let, let me say this, I like Sean, he's a friend of mine, so I'm saying this in good, in good jest, but it was funny. But uh, yeah, Sean Ferguson went from being a lightweight to a heavyweight in the space of 12 months, weighed in at the, um, as a heavyweight, <laughs> a big heavy duffel coat, work boots and, uh, and a rucksack. <laughs> and possibly rocks in his coat as well, yeah. and, uh, and made it into the heavies. Um, whilst everyone else was like down to their birthday suit pretty much at the wedding and um, yeah that was that was just a sight to be I'll just seen Sean because Sean was a bit of a trickster as well wasn't he so you know he was like the Mike Katz of natural he, bodybuilding he yeah like, he was living in the pumping iron days wasn't he definitely bless him yeah yeah he was so um, nice guy I've always liked yeah very very nice very nice uh, very nice chap but that that was a funny incident at the way the other one as well um let's say what was this uh, 2000 uh i think this was like 2004 now this was <coughs> this was when i was um i went to another another south port i think um this was quite funny i was supporting dean garrett because dean garrett was competing as a lightweight that's right and, um, and rob feasy and rob feasy was there competing yeah. and mike phillips was at that show as well that's the first time i met mike mm -hmm. um and um i was backstage helping like dean like you know just just helping him like prepare 
backstage. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't judging. It was another show, so I was there as a fan. And um, and and Bob Feasy was there tanning up with his uh, panata tan. And it, it was very unusual because he had got. <laughs> this is uh, hilarious. Just think about it now. He's pumping up. He got big heavy work boots on. Yeah. Leather rigger gloves. <laughs> And one of those 1980s a ball worker, ball worker things, yeah, and a woolly hat, and in the middle of summer, <laughs> and he got tan everywhere except his hands, his face, and his feet. And so I mean, it was a sight to behold. We wish I'd got a camera, but um, I, it was just it was funny. But Rob looked incredible that year, Bob Tracy, and I believe he even won his class. That's he didn't win the NABA, no, he, he didn't. He, he won the EFBB British one year as a lightweight, but I think the year that both of them did Nabra, I think Rob came about fifth or sixth and Dean didn't place. Because uh, they were in class four, weren't they? And Land of the Giants stuff, they've got 16 oh, yeah. stone guys and that. But yeah, that Rob Feezy in his work boots, woolly hat and rigger gloves, bending a ball worker with no tan on his face. That's like one of those just bizarre sights that loads of us have had at a bodybuilding show backstage and just... It's it's a good one, isn't it? It is a good one, and I've seen plenty of, of similar kind of scenarios. But I think Rob sort of nailed it that day <laughs> with, uh, with, uh, with with the shock value. Uh, and um, I mean, he was in shape, so you know he could get it. He could he can he can do that. He can kind of he can have all that strange sort of pre-contest paraphernalia going on, but he can walk the walk because he was in condition. So yeah, fair play to him. But yeah, that, those are just a couple of memories that stand out. I've seen a lot of funny things on stage over the years. And, and you know what? It's great. It, it, it keeps it keeps it lighthearted. We can have a chuckle, can't we? So in terms of your own training and uh, little mishaps in the gym, what's your biggest ever gym fail? What's your most embarrassing gym moment? Oh, crikey. Um, yeah, personally, uh, God, I mean, I'm careful in the gym, so there's not been too many of them. But... Um, I used to do this exercise when I trained at a commercial gym back in the early 2000s called a reverse hack squat. I don't know if you've ever seen that done. So you're on a hack squat machine, uh, but instead of facing outwards, you're facing into the machine. Face down with your legs out wide. Yeah. So I was doing that and, you know, I was, um, I, I was sort of gunning for a big lift. I've got a lot of weight on there. I've got something like six, seven, maybe even eight plates aside on the damn thing. And, um, of course, you know, you know what happens next. I, I hook it up and then I go, you know, you ever gone a little bit too low in a rep <laughs> and then you can't get up. So I got in that position and I got trapped at the bottom. And, uh, <laughs> it was really embarrassing because I got so much flipping weight on there that some, no, no, you know, no one in the obvious vicinity could, could get me out of it. So in the end, about three or four guys came to free me from the machine because I was like literally squashed at the bottom of it. And uh, God knows how I didn't break my back. Um, I think I put myself out of action for a few weeks, but that was funny. But like, I, I, I've seen lots of gym fails, and um, I've seen some horrendous fails on Smith machines where people have fallen back, you know, attempting to squat way more weight than they can handle. Yeah. You know, uh, spotters, you know, not doing their jobs properly, and oh, some terrible things over the years. But personally, yeah, that that's the kind of as, as bad as it gets. And you know, touch wood, I've not had anything to. Yeah, too serious. What was the commercial gym that you trained at back then? Was that when you were at Zeus? Was it Zeus gym? Uh, that was it. No, no, it wasn't. That was a gym called The Cave. Um, I did train at Zeus gym in Swaddling Cave. Uh, that was a really great gym. Uh, hardcore. I had some competitive bodybuilders there. Paul Thomas competed there. With the Paul IFB Thomas. 
was an, yeah. it was an IFBB pro for a short while, wasn't it? He, he was, yeah. I bumped into Paul Thomas there, and uh, it was quite odd, really, because he didn't know who I was, but I knew who he, he was. Mm. And so I sort of walked over to him and introduced myself, and he was like, who's this random guy just coming talking to me? And I explained that I, I sort of grew up um, competing originally in the IFBB, and I knew, I knew who he was because he'd won the British. And um, yeah, he's a good. He's a good guy, and you know, gave me a few pointers, and you know, we uh, trained in the same gym, so there was a good energy there. Lots of competitors, but yeah, the, the, where I did that that lift, that was uh, that was at the Cave Gym. So I trained at a few different commercial gyms over the years, and uh, always enjoyed like experimenting with different kit where I could. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm getting pinned into it. Well, last one from me then, mate. Um, uh, I, I had a brilliant anecdote about trying to copy your uh, 10 ounces of steak with hash browns and eggs for breakfast thing, by the way. <laughs> Stick in earlier. That was the secret to John Harris's off-season success, everybody. Uh, in the days before he learned how to get lean, steak, eggs and hash browns for breakfast every day. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that was a breakfast I used to eat on holiday when I went out into America because that's all they used to serve me, I think. So well, I was a big believer in um, steak and eggs, uh, absolutely, uh, you know, some good fats. I've always been a believer in, 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 in you know, keeping your fats level you know, healthy. And um, red meat, yeah, I don't know what it is about it. I don't know, like a bit of natural creatine, you know, and, and wonder stuff, iron, vitamin it? B, yeah. yeah. I'm a yeah. big believer in solid foods and solid gains. Supplements play their place, and um, I use whey protein, but it's always been only, you know, in, in small doses, relatively speaking. Um, the bulk of my gains have come from eating, like, you know, uh, you know, white meat, fish, eggs, beef, lean cuts, obviously. Uh, food. And, and it's filling so you, you don't feel like you're going hungry i always felt when i was relying on whey protein i was never satisfied from my meals um i'd always you know end up sort of eating wanting to eat more food afterwards and i was always able to control my calories a lot better when i was eating absolutely food and chewing it much like your training keep it simple you know keep it simple mm -hmm. but my last question then and this is uh, this is this is this is one that gets everybody because I have to take I've got to take the low hanging fruit out of the equation. No contest wins allowed, um, other than winning a bodybuilding contest. What is your your greatest moment in the sport? That one moment where if you could bottle it up and relive that one moment in time over and over again, what was what was what what would be your big moment in the sport, except for winning a contest? All right, uh, well. Let, let me ask you for it does does my first show count because i won it but i was the only one but it's not the fact that i won it that i enjoy, that it's the, the, the most enjoyable time oh my god i'm good with that you're good with that it's my first time valid, valid answer i was valid i won by default i was the only one in my class and so it doesn't really count as a win it, it is but it isn't but it was my first time on stage and it was the 1992 EFBB, East of England Championships at the Haymarket Theatre. Sugar's show. Sugar, sugar, sugar Christopher's show. Sugar Christopher's show that he still runs now. He still runs it and it's a crap. Love game, Sugar. Really. Love yeah, Sugar. What a great guy. And, and if I can just sort of like, just, just like reminisce slightly on that show, because that was like back in 1992. I was 17 years old. I, I dieted for like 10 weeks solid for that show. It was good. <coughs> uh, I've still got the photos from Roger Shelley. And um, yeah, it was just the, the buzz that I got from being on stage and, and, and I'll just never forget it, the adrenaline rush. And it was that instant that I was hooked and that, and that kind of carried me forward to 
compete and, and achieve what I've done today. But it was a big show. We had some really big names in the sport qualify at that show. You know, this uh, guy's like, I think that was the way, like J.D. Duwadu qualified for the British. J.D., yeah. And then went on to win his five BB Pro card. And this <coughs> oh, excuse me. You know, yeah, guys like like him and, you know, Basil Francis and all those big monsters in the sport. They were competing it back yeah. in the day. So that was like, that was my first exposure to the sport back then. Uh, and it was a massive sold out qualifier. Everyone was walking around in big stripy baggies back in there. Ah, you know, yes. You know, uh, it, was, it, was, it was just hilarious. With, with black leather bum bags on. Exactly. Uh, yeah, everyone. Pulling, pulling rice cakes out of their bum bags and chewing on them. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was that atmosphere and everyone had got the big air horns going, like, like everyone was supporting each other with, with the air horns. And it was just such an amazing atmosphere for my first bodybuilding show. I mean, I, I, I was only, you know, 17 years young and 140 pounds wet, but, you know, I just felt like, you know, this is, this, this is going to be an adventure. And, and yes, it took me a while to, to find my niche eventually with the BMBF and, and then through to the WMBF, you know, it was, a, it was quite a winding journey to get through to that in the end. But, you know, I've got to be thankful for that first show for just giving me the hook to get into bodybuilding and it, it's been a, a, a sort of a bit of a love affair since really and uh, great to be able to give back to the sport even now I'm not competing be able to judge and, and um, it's a pleasure later judging your federation and be part of a part of the, the machine you know a little cog but you know, hopefully you know a, a, a cog which just helps the machine you know work a little bit more smoothly and um, helps it on to, to bigger and better things. And you know what? You know, this year is going to be a challenging year for the Federation and for all federations, but I think big things are going to be happening now thereafter. And uh, the, the sport will bounce back big yeah. time. Yeah, we'll manage. We're expecting a small year this year. We are expecting shows to be able to happen, but they're, they're not going to be enormous. But it's like I was saying to AJ, to Mark the other week, to Nancy the other week, you know, that first year, 2011, where, funnily enough, your 2006 Worlds win picture was our poster, wasn't it, for the uh, 2011 Worlds? Yeah. When you yeah. won overall, that was, that was the image on our poster. We had 48 people in the show that year. And, um, you know, and, and it's still my favourite year yet. And it's probably still one of the best crops of bodybuilders we've had. And, you know, the likes of Rich Gosdecki winning the overall and going on to be, you know, the first of the next generation of legends in the pros. I don't think having smaller numbers this year will hurt us in terms of quality or credibility. Um, and it's, it is a pleasure to have you part of it. Like Mark was saying the other week, mate, you know, when he went to his, one of his first AMB shows and Andrew Palmer weighed him in, you know, the, the impact on him of having somebody with such pedigree in the sport at the time looking after him was massive. And I know our members do or certainly should feel the same way when they look down at the judging table and they see the likes of you, who was, you know, in many ways, one of the pioneers of bringing the sport to where it is now, you know, by making people aware of it, by, make, you know, putting yourself out there and being one of the, the top guys in the sport. And, and uh, no, it's a real pleasure to have you part of it, mate. And it's uh, long may it continue. Um, I'll let AJ sign off now, but John, it has been amazing. I know it's been a long podcast, but 
you're never going to do these things in, in five minutes flat when you're talking to somebody with your history and pedigree. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed every second, mate. Thank you. Me too, Lee. Uh, I, I'll just echo that. It's been a pleasure to be on to, and have the time to be able to recount some stories and a little bit of history in the sport and give give the people you know, a taste of, of what happened in, in yesteryear, really, and put, it, put things into context. Especially the air horns. Not enough air horns at bodybuilding shows. People, <laughs> they're on. great so long as you're not sitting right next to someone with one because they're deafening. But yeah, it's, we uh, used to go to Halfords. Every, every shows were always on Sundays. Every Saturday, where we had people from the gym competing, we'd jump down Halfords and clean out all the air horns. We take two each because they never last that long. And yeah, air horns—they they were a massive part of the bodybuilding culture in the nineties, weren't they? Yeah, they were. They were every show. I've not heard yeah. them for a long time. I, I did wonder whether they got banned. <laughs> um, no. no. Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Seeing as, you know, we might be social distancing and only having half the audience that the UK were allowed to have, you know, normally. Bring your air horns, people. Let's, let's, let's reclaim the air horn. Let's bring it back. That is so good. <laughs> yeah. So game for that. My my greatest memory of bodybuilding, again, I know the podcast has a bit about me, but when I competed at the EFBB British in 98, and like you, John, I had wonderful memories of the EFBB competing with them. Uh, Julian Feinstein was the president at the time, may he rest in peace. Yeah. Bill Tierney's been really, you know, a, a great bloke who I've been proud to know over the years, lovely guy. And that show back then was at the Royal Concert Hall in Nottingham. And there must have been about 3,000 people in the audience when I walked out on stage straight after Ernie Taylor had done a guest spot. And at least a quarter of the audience were firing air horns as we walked out on stage. And it was echoing around the Royal Concert Hall. And it just, yeah, it was... It, that, that's probably, if I was to ever answer the greatest moment in bodybuilding question, that would be it. Walking in front, out in front of all that crowd that had been fired up by Big Ernie and then they're all blaring air horns as we come out. Yeah, big, big, big atmosphere booster back in the day. But I've got to stop talking now. AJ, over to you. <laughs> no, just to echo Lee, John, really appreciate your time. Um, I mean, I massively look up to you as an athlete and as a person. I really, really do. Um, so it's an absolute pleasure to talk for you, to talk to you for this long and uh, have you on the podcast. And I just really hope that, you know, people go away, they do the research on you a little bit more and find out more about, even more about you and as, see some of your stage shots and get in, inspired as much as I have in the past. Yeah. So, and, and currently, so yeah, mate, thank you very much. Um, if, there's any place where people can contact you in terms of email or, or, or is, is the website the best place to go if people want to ask you a question specifically? Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm not really big on, on social media. Um, I spend most of my time living in a virtual world as it is. So I tend to sort of withdraw slightly from social media. But if you do want to uh, get in touch, please do. Uh, my website is John Harris, J-O-N-H-A-R-R-I-S, johnharris.com. Uh, email john at johnharris.com. You can find me on there. Or uh, visit naturalmuscle.co.uk. And uh, again, there's an email link on there. And you know, I'm always happy to publish content. So yeah, get in touch if you've got a story and uh, yeah we'll get that moving but guys thank you very much for having me on the show it's been an absolute pleasure and you know i hope the listeners have managed to get you know a few little nuggets of uh, of, of, of information from the show and, and best of luck with the the rest of the series i'll be tuning in to listening to, to more of the podcast i think you've got something really good here and yeah, it will continue to grow and um 
and be a fantastic resource for the people coming through the sport. So well done. Pleasure. Thank you, John. Thank you to the listeners as well for tuning in and uh, we will see you next time. Thank you.